What makes a successful fantasy player? I'll ask Dave Potts. He's one of the most successful fantasy players ever. And he's next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way. Because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 18th. It's show number 17 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Dave Potts, one of the most successful fantasy players ever, discussing what makes a successful fantasy owner, responding to hot and cold starts by hitters and pitchers, his work analyzing DFS at Roto Grinders, and his boons and banes for the rest of the season. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at injuries to Starling Marte, A.J. Pollock, and more, and from the American League with Jock Thompson, looking at double whammies hitting Robinson Cano and Adrian Beltre and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon reports on Mets first base prospect Peter Alonso. And in our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Tampa reliever Colin Posh. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly Talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about how to add stolen bases to your team. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about what fantasy players would look like if we changed the categories a little bit. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Can you believe the rain in the northeastern United States this week? When the Mets played, I was relieved to see the Noah on the mound wasn't the guy with the ark. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Dave Potts, one of the most successful fantasy players ever. Dave, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, how are you today? I'm doing fine, thanks, Dave. Uh, before we get rolling talking about fantasy baseball, I was curious what you thought of the Supreme Court decision in the U.S. that basically removes federal laws restricting sports gambling and uh, should result in a big expansion of sports gambling in uh, in the many states. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting. I don't have a strong take on it other than, of course, I think sports gambling should be legal. Um, I don't think it's necessarily good or bad or otherwise. Um, but, uh, you know, just looking at the law with, you know, I, I didn't go to that particular day of law school, but there's no reason it should be just unconstitutional. Um, I don't think it probably helps fantasy sports in the long run. I, I, would, I would guess, if anything, it hurts it. Um, and I don't like that, but there's no reason we shouldn't be able to bet on a sporting game. Do you say it's going to possibly hurt fantasy sports because up till now fantasy has been a kind of a sideways way for people who couldn't gamble legally in the states where it's not allowed, and that's 46 out of the 50, I think, couldn't place a bet on a sporting event. Now they can. Maybe they'll gravitate away from the fantasy they were using to exercise that particular uh, desire. Yeah, that's how I see it. It's definitely more of a DFS issue than a season-long issue um, where, it, you know, people just have a certain amount of extra budget they can 
play to do whatever they're doing with sports gambling or fantasy sports or, you know, going to the racetrack, whatever you're doing. Um, I feel like it's just going to kind of steal some of that. And I know there are people that are just going to gravitate towards one or the other rather than both. And of course, Daily Fantasy uh, fought a battle uh, along these lines to, to not be considered gambling. And I suppose there'd be a lot of states that aren't going to enable uh, sports gambling because the Supreme Court, I think, basically said each state can decide for itself. So I imagine in the long run, some states will, many states won't, and uh, we'll have to see how that works out. You are best known, I think, as a Daily Fantasy player, Dave, but you also play season-long leagues as well and very successfully. How many leagues are you playing this year? Um, I pretty much just play NFBC now, um, and I have uh, about 10 fab leagues, you know, between main events and auctions and, and things like that. And then I play uh, the cut line as well. I have quite a few cut line teams, I think about 15. Uh, I've enjoyed that format, but uh, pretty much just sticking with the NFBC these days. I always wonder when I talk to people who have had success as you have had in fantasy baseball, uh, whether you could ever even get into a home league because nobody would want you, <laughs> nobody would want you to play. When I started writing for Baseball HQ, that was the reaction I had in a lot of attempts to join leagues. They, they'd figure, uh, no thanks, we don't need the uh, we don't need the ace in the in the in the market here. I have I have one home league I still play, and I've I've dropped them off over the years. Um, actually, I don't even do particularly. Well, in that it's a it's a kind of unique format, um, and it's you know I, I'm nothing special in that compared to anyone else. So, um, but I don't have time to branch out to a whole bunch of different types of leagues and things. So I've had to cut back. You know, I don't do any more head-to-head leagues and things like that. So, trying to stick with with one format and where I can concentrate on it. I imagine uh, 10 leagues plus uh, the DFS will keep you plenty busy. You mentioned that you like the cutline format. What is it about cutline that you enjoy? Um, I just, you know, I like the fact that you don't have the in-season work because I just don't have the time to be adding more fab leagues. Uh, anyone who plays really any any league with, um, you know, a, a competitive fab, you know how much time that takes per team. So um, I, I like that you can draft all through the off season without adding a whole bunch of work in season when you don't have the time. And overall, Dave, how are your teams doing, your uh, various NFBC teams? Uh, totally all over the map. Um, you know, what I found just uh, looking through them, all the leagues are competitive enough right now that the teams that are near the bottom, it's like, you know, 10 runs and you're up 10 points all of a sudden or like you're very close to moving up, and then the teams that are doing well, it's the same thing. Well, if I lose two wins, I drop eight spots. So um, I, I don't feel like I can tell yet how I'm doing, but you know, about half my teams are near the top and half are near the middle or the bottom. But um, all the leagues are close enough that I don't think anything is really well fleshed out yet. And when we're talking about the cut line format, that's a best ball type of thing that I hear about on, uh, I hear the best ball terminology used uh, at SiriusXM quite a bit with regards to football, but basically you draft your team and then the computer selects which uh, players you had did the best in a particular scoring period and that's how you get scored. Yeah, they worked on you know creating a point system that pretty closely resembles 5x5 five five scoring. Um, and it's, yeah, they're ranked. It just auto-selects your best lineup for the week based on points. Um, 
And then around, I don't remember the date, sometime in July, the top four teams from every 10-team league will move on to a next round. And you go through these cuts. That's where I determine cut, cut line. You end up with oh. a final pool of like 20 teams in the overall final. Um, but it, and it's, it's fun to watch throughout the season. Um, and easy to, it's easier to follow a, a points league because, you know, you know what a point is versus another point. It can be a little harder to figure out how, what do I do to move up in ERA or something like that. Yeah, I didn't realize that the cut line also referred to basically you're making the cut like in a golf tournament. Exactly, yeah. So the top two finishers in each league at the first cut move on to the, the championship bracket and the bottom two or the you know third and fourth place go into a consolation bracket and then the winners of the consolation brackets can move up into the championship bracket after the next cut and yeah, it's a series of, of cut downs to a, a final a final twenty. In a good year, how many of your ten teams would you expect to make the uh, to make that championship round? Um, so I only started playing cut line last year, and it's only been around for two years. So I don't know, I don't have the sample size yet to know, you know, right. how many are going to make it. Uh, I think last year about half my teams made the first cut, and I had one in the final twenty. Um, and then, I mean, there's a lot of, there's, I don't remember how many teams, there's well over a thousand teams. So getting in the final twenties, um, yeah, it's good. Difficult to do if you have a bunch of good teams, but I, right now out of my 15 teams, about, about half again would be moving on past the first cut. In the past, did you ever play the other formats like score sheet or challenge those kind of things? Um, I never played a score sheet. Um, I did play like the CDM, uh, salary cap games. Which I really, I really do like the salary cap format. That sort of DFS has sort of taken its place for me, um, but I did enjoy those games. And uh, when baseball's not on, do you play any of the other sports uh, as fantasy football or basketball? I guess is a bit overlap. I I don't. I, I goof around with with DFS football. I mean, I, I love football. Um, it's it's my favorite sport, even more than baseball, just for sitting watching a sport. Um, but I've never had time to get into season-long football because you have to do your prep in the middle of baseball season, and I just I don't have the time to figure out what I'm doing. So eventually I might get into it, but uh, baseball is the only thing I take seriously. Well, Dave, I mentioned at the uh, start uh, that you've been a very successful fantasy player. People know you from your success in DFS. You've had some NFBC championships as well. Uh, in general, what do you think makes you a successful fantasy player? Um, you know, it's a really boring answer and I feel like people always want a more exciting answer than this, but the, the very simple truth is I've just spent a crazy amount of time on it. Um, and it's just like almost anything, somebody's going to work harder than somebody else. It's, it's not some special skill set. I mean, I think most people could learn how to interpret the numbers in their own way and how to draft and how to do fab. Um, some people just work harder at it. How much time do you think you spend in a week uh, doing your various roster analysis and making your fab moves and that kind of thing? Well, the beauty of what I do now, because I you know, do content for, for DFS, for Roto-Grinders, is it's a constant. It's all I do all day, every day for six months is something about baseball research, whether it's specifically for DFS or specifically for an NFBC team or an overall look at a player it all sort of plays together where, I mean, it's really a, at least bare minimum 
10 hours a day. Um, maybe I take one day off. Sometimes I take Saturdays off. Um, so it's just really all I do all day, every day from March through October. And of course, a lot of fantasy players, I dare say most fantasy players don't have the luxury of that much time to spare on it because they have other uh, obligations. But if a regular fantasy owner out there was able to ask you, what one thing could I do to make myself better, to up my game? What would be your advice to the, about the one thing that you think a regular fantasy owner could do without adding as much time as you're able to put into it? Yeah, I mean, I would say make sure you're focusing on the few things that are actually important, um, meaning however many leagues you have, um, the working out, your, the, your fab, your lineup setting, whatever, for that team should be the thing you spend the most time doing. Like, it's great to say, oh, I'm going to um, read all these articles and watch all these shows. Um, Listen to all these podcasts. You should focus on your specific team. And too many people, to me, seem to want to get more advice than they need on their teams. Like I, I love to help people and you know, we're here to help with advice. Um, but, but spend your, the time you do have on your specific team. You've got, you know, you've got a pretty narrow player pool. Um, once the season starts of guys that are free agents and guys that you're looking at making moves with, that's what you should be looking at. Do most fantasy players, a lot of fantasy players are playing in eight or ten leagues at a time. Is that just too many? Should we be cutting back to one or two teams so we can give more devoted attention to a couple of teams rather than spreading ourselves thin? Uh, how do you feel about that for a regular guy? I, I definitely think a lot of people have too many leagues. I have found that sort of, you know, I used to play 30 or 40 fab leagues. Um, I'm still able to do about 10. I think most people should probably be looking at three to five. Um, I don't like to, I wouldn't like to do just one or two because you, you can run into that. You just lose a season on a team when just everything goes wrong and there's nothing you can do to fix it. Right. So I'd like to have, I would tell anyone to have a couple different shots at, you know, having a team where things go right instead of things go wrong. But I think, you know, three, four or five teams is just way more manageable than, you know, 15 teams. I've heard the argument, though, that if you have, say you had five teams and one, two of them are doing pretty well, one of them's kind of middling, and then two of them are just having injury trouble and are not going anywhere, do you think it's okay to just drop those last two teams that have no futures, even though it kind of has an effect on the rest of the guys in that league? At this point in the year, definitely don't drop anything, no matter how bad it looks. I think once you get past the All-Star break, and you can clearly see this team has no chance. Um, what I would say is you have an obligation to the league to make sure you've set your valid lineup every week and make the obvious pickups that are supposed to be there. Like, I don't think you have to spend five hours working on your free agents on a last-place team with no shot, but I think you have an obligation to at least check if somebody drops a a great player and you're the guy with the most fab money, you're supposed to bid on like, you know, make, make the obvious moves without, you know, going overboard on your time. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Dave Potts uh, from Roto-Grinders. And Dave, we're getting to the time of the season when player stat profiles are starting to firm up a little bit. Uh, I'd like to talk with you about some players who are off to some pretty hot starts and some pretty cold starts, and maybe get your assessments of their potential to keep the momentum going if they're going well and to change the momentum if they're not. Let's start with... uh, the guy who's at the top of a lot of uh, value lists, Mookie Betts of Boston. What a great start he's off to, but can he maintain it? Yeah, he's one guy. I don't think there's any reason to doubt in him at all. I think when you look at the skills of the last several years, I think last year was the probably the low point. Um, I doubt we'll ever see a season as, air quote, bad as last year when <laughs> a 24-homer, 26-steal season is bad. Um, he doesn't strike out. He hits the ball really hard. He's really fast. He's on the top of a great lineup. Like there's just, I think there's just no reason at all to doubt him. I've heard a lot of uh, analysts and guys calling games and talking about the games that say it's the move back to the top of the lineup. Alex Cora put him in the leadoff spot and said, "This is your spot," and that's they think has been a real help for Mookie Betts. Uh, how do you uh, how do you assess that kind of analysis? Yeah, I'm always skeptical of that analysis because I think we just don't know. Um, a lot of times I, I hear that, that a guy just wants to know where he's going to be every day, and that could absolutely be the case for some players, and it could be for bets. Um, I really have no idea. I just know that the skills look so legit that regardless of if that's the reason or not, I'm, I'm just fully in. And the other part of it, I think, is uh, the argument says that you put a guy uh, with Mookie Betts' skill set and you put him in the third or fourth slot in the lineup, all of a sudden he feels a little more pressure to drive in runs rather than just to play his game, whereas if he's leading off, then he's got a freer hand to just do what he needs to do to get on base. Do you buy that? Yeah, that's where, like, that totally makes sense, and that could could be the case with Mookie Betts. Like, I don't, I don't like to guess what's going on in the player's head, you know? Um, but certainly it, it would make sense. If I were a manager, I would have bets hitting leadoff. Um, I mean, everything about him says leadoff hitter. There's no reason you can't have your leadoff hitter hitting home runs. Um, it w- yeah, so like I say, it wouldn't surprise me if that's helping him, but I don't, I don't know one way or another. I just know the guy looks awesome. And one last question about Mookie Betts. His current batting average is around 350. His on-base percentage around four and a quarter. In both cases, that's you know 35 points of batting average, 60 points of on-base percentage, better than any past high. Does that give you any uh, cause for concern that you think maybe there's got to be some backwards movement coming? Um, I mean, I don't expect him to end up this high. But I, I think, you know, what I see, I would expect him to end up ahead of, like his 2016 season was like a 318 average and a 363 on base. I think he'll end up higher than that. Um, you know, even if you're, you know, looking at how he's a, what, a $44 player right now. I mean, even if he pulls back and he becomes, he's a $38 player, he's, this is still a top, definitely top five hitter, if not better than that. So I, even, yes, I would say I expect a little pullback, but he'll still be top of the league pullback. Same go for slugging. He's about 200 points better than 2016, which was past peak. Yeah, the sl- I do expect the slugging to come down a little more. Like, um, 
we're at the point of the season where you, we can start looking at, like, whether you look at the stat cast data and the exit velocity or, like, the hard hit percentage and this stuff. I mean, he's hitting the ball so hard compared to what he used to, and he's not hitting the ball on the ground as much. Um, so I, I do think the increased slugging is probably real. Um, although, like I say, I, I would probably split the difference between the 733 he's at now and the 534 he was at in 2016. I mean, it's not like he's a 50 home run hitter, um, but I think the power is very real. And a 630-ish slugging percentage is nothing to sneeze at either. Uh, I said that was the last question. I've got one more about Mookie Betts, and that is he's pretty small. He's 5'9", 180 listed. He's probably a little smaller than that. They tend to overlist these guys. Is there any concern about stamina, durability, those kind of things for a guy who's of relatively small stature compared to, a, you know, Aaron Judge or Giancarlo or one of those type of big hulking guys? Yeah, sort of. Except it seems like we've just seen, I mean, you know, you think of Altuve um, in past years, and it's kind of like until he gives me some reason to doubt him, I, I don't, I don't want to just try to find a reason. Um, so, yeah, he, it does look weird that people who are this size, he's like slightly smaller than me, and I'm not a hulk of a man. Um, it doesn't seem like he should have this kind of power or that he could make it last for six months, but I just don't see any any reason to doubt him. Like He hasn't given me any reason not to just love him. Well, speaking of small guys doing well, uh, Ozzy Albies of Atlanta, a rookie no less, uh, he's a switch hitter, which helps, but he's even smaller than Mookie Betts, and here he is leading the uh, National League in runs, in doubles, uh, in home runs, and uh, OPS around 900. Do you believe in Aussie Albies? There's a trickier one. I'm I'm a little torn. It, if you had never heard of Aussie Albies and never read a scouting report and hadn't seen him play, and you just looked at the numbers, I would say his power is definitely fluky. You know, if you look at his minor league numbers, he had like nine home runs in over 400 at-bats at AAA last year. This is not, it doesn't look from the numbers like a power hitter yet. But then there's that, you know, that scouting report, and, you know, we know who is supposed to be a great player, and he is supposed to be a great player. I still think this, this early season power surge is probably not the real guy right now. I, I do not expect him to hit, 13 homers every six weeks the rest of the way. Um, I love the guy. I, I expect the batting average will be fine. He can steal bases. He's going to score a ton of runs. Um, but I need to see more before I'm just all in on this power right now. How much do you adjust your player assessment process for a start like this when it comes to a rookie? It gets really it gets really tough um, because there's just there's no baseline to judge him on, and it seems like we've seen just so many players drastically outperform their minor league numbers in their first season. It's like it's happening all the time, almost to the point where I don't even know what to do with AAA numbers anymore because it's it's almost like AAA is just harder to hit in than the majors. Um, it's just such a weird thing that's been going on the last few years but still what i try to do is compare 
where these rookies are hitting as far as, um, you know, how hard are they hitting the ball? What's their, you know, are they hitting line drives and fly balls compared to other players? Um, and I still just, when I look at that right now with Albies, it still doesn't look like this home run power should be quite this real. Um, I want to believe that he'll keep hitting for this much power, but I, I'm just not quite there. At the other end of the spectrum, Dave, we have Nick Markakis, who looks like he uh, had himself a bath in the fountain of youth. I think his batting average is higher than it's ever been, his on-base is higher than it's ever been, and I believe his slugging percentage is also higher than ever, and he's 34 years old. Uh, what's your take on Nick Markakis and his potential to keep it going? Yeah, I'm so glad you wanted to ask about Nick Markakis because there's this whole idea in fantasy baseball, especially in the off season when we start looking at season long drafts, and every uh, you know people love their term sleeper. Every sleeper is a young player, and every young player has upside, and every old player has downside, and that's just what people say. Um, and it's just not quite accurate. Like old players have upside too. Um, and young players have downside. It, it's not just a straight line that you're good and then you get worse. Um, you know, 34 years old isn't quite dead yet. Um, you know, it's not like he's 40. He's always had some kind of really good talent. Um, he's never struck out in his whole career. You know, back when he was at the Orioles, he was a 2020 guy um, or 2018, whatever it was. Um, he's at near 300 a bunch of times. I just think he's always been a good hitter. It's, yeah, it's early sample size, but he's made some adjustment with his swing path. I mean, he's not hitting the ball on the ground as much. We've seen this with a lot of guys the last few years with, with the StatCast data. It's like nobody told these guys for 100 years that it's better to hit the ball hard and in the air. Um, but that's what he's doing. Um, he's hitting line drives. He's hitting the ball a little harder than before. He's striking out even less. Um, there's no reason a 34-year-old can't have a good year any more than a 24-year-old can have a good year. Um, I, I basically believe in everything he's doing. I mean, I don't see any reason he can't be a 300 hitter with a pile of runs and RBIs. Of course, the one thing that jumps out for me is uh, every year in his career has been a double-digit strikeout percentage. I think the lowest was around 10.5 or so. He was hovering around 15 16% the last couple of years, and this year, for the first time, he's under 10%. And uh, I, to me, Dave, it feels a little more believable because it's something that a guy can choose to do, is to be more selective, be more focused and disciplined at the plate. This is not a question of, uh, you know, you can't, really, I don't think, choose to hit the ball harder. You're going to hit it as hard as you can every time. And if that's happening as a result of these other changes you're making, I don't know. I like this. I like the strikeout percentage as an indicator of this is something that we should treat as pretty realistic. Absolutely. And it's, you know, at this point in the year, the strikeout rate is one of the only things that is has enough sample size to be pretty stable now. Um and and like you say, even when he, even with this being a career low, and he's never struck out much. Like last year's whatever sixteen percent rate was like the most he's ever struck out. Um, 
and it would make sense to me that he's, um, you know, he's coming up to bat with runners in scoring position every time with who's ahead of him. Um, I don't think pitchers um, want to be scared of Nick Markakis. Like, he's the guy in the middle of this lineup who's going to get the pitch to hit if somebody is. Um, and, yeah, I just I, I like him. I I just feel like the the bias against old players is just unwarranted. Could be uh, one of those market inefficiencies that we should all be thinking about taking advantage of in future drafts. That uh, it's the Nick Markakis's of the world who kind of get shuffled off to the side because everybody's looking at the shiny new toy under the tree. Uh, Kevin Pillar of Toronto, maybe not quite as established a veteran as Nick Markakis, but a guy who's got six years this year in the, in the big leagues and he's leading the American League in doubles as of earlier this week. But a lot of his owners and a lot of touts that I've been reading and listening to see Kevin Pillar as a sell-high candidate. He can't keep it up. And the reason is a lot of his metrics look pretty identical to his past years, although he does have a higher line drive rate. What do you make of Kevin Pillar's sudden surge, especially in slugging percentage? He's hitting the ball harder and a lot of line drives. Yeah, I think he's, I think he's pretty good. Uh, this line drive rate has to be sample size fluke, like... We don't have enough to say, oh, now he's a 30% line driver. Like, nobody's a 30 or 32% line drive hitter. Um, I will say, you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't go nuts with StatCast data, but he has definitely and clearly intentionally improved his launch angle every year. He's gone up from 10% to 12.5% to 14% now. Um, I don't think it's an accident at all that he's not hitting as many ground balls. Um, he's never struck out a lot. He's fast, which just being fast can make up for a lot of other inefficiencies. Like it would make sense that he would have a high BABIP, um, especially if the line drives are even partially real. The reason I don't think he's a sell high is I don't think anyone believes in him. Um, like I don't think there's anyone who's buying high on Kevin Pillar. If anything, I think you can still buy low on him. Um, he has just has, it's such a dull name that I, I don't, I would be stunned if anyone anywhere would give you trade value based on what he's done this year. Um, nobody thinks he's a 300 hitter. Um, I think it's more, he's closer to a 300 hitter than the two, he was what, 255 last year. Right. I think everything went wrong for him last year as far as Babbitt, especially, um, I think he's totally fine. Like he's not a guy you chase after, but he's a perfectly good filler um, for most fantasy teams. Moving on to the other side, we've had some pretty well-known players, big-name players, high draft pick players who are off to slow starts. And the first name that jumps out at me, being a guy who lives near Toronto, is Joey Votto. And Votto's down around $15 of value after spending the last few years closer to 30 or even above, even higher, of course, in on-base percentage leagues. Uh, where do you see Joey Votto, and what do you look at for the balance of the season? Yeah, I, I can't even strongly enough say how much I have no concern at all about Votto. Like, the first couple weeks of the season were kind of slow for him. Um, but, like, consistently just elite plate skills. Like, he doesn't strike out, he takes walks. He's one of the only guys with a, a batting eye over one multiple years. Um, you know, we just talked about the line drives with 
Pilar, nobody has had a longer-term track record of line drive hitting than Votto, and it's just it's just exceptional when you look at league average line drives and how he's up every single year. This year he's at 36% line drives. Even if that number's fluky, it just shows this is still a very real skill for this guy. He has more walks than strikeouts. And after that slow start, I think he was hitting 244 on April 24th. Now he's hitting 289. Um, he, he's going to be the same old 320, 30 homer guy as ever. Um, I think the team is fine now. He was also struggling when Suarez was out and Shevler was out for a while. I think the team's not that bad. Um, I'm, I'm fully 100% in on Votto. And if we were drafting today, I'd draft him in the same place as I did at the beginning. The one thing I've always liked about Joey Votto was basically a 0% infield fly ball rate, and he's down around that again this year, so he's definitely putting lumber on the ball, that's for sure. In St. Louis, Marcelo Zuna, another guy that the touts were really crazy about coming into the year. He's under $9 right now. How much of a buy-low opportunity do you see in Marcelo Zuna? I see moderate buy-low. What I would say is he's definitely better than he looks right now. I fully expect the home runs to start coming. But I do think it's pretty likely that last year was the career year. Um, I mean, everyone's going to have their best year sometime. I'm pretty sure that was it for Ozuna. So I'm not buying as a 300 hitter with 35 homers, 125 RBIs. Like I I doubt we'll see that again. But if you look at the like the drop in home run to fly ball this year, I don't see any reason that won't come back up to probably above his career sort of 15% rate. I don't see him as, like I say, the 23% guy he was last year. Um, But I think this is more, we just need to give it a little time to balance out. Um, He's going to hit for power. But I, I just don't think you should expect a return to a career year. I think he's a very good player, not a superstar. We mentioned Ozzy Albies a moment ago. Uh, his teammate and double play partner Dansby Swanson was another guy who was touted before the season as a potential breakout possibility. But as of earlier this week, he was way under $10 in 5 by 5 value using BaseballHQ.com's valuations. Uh, how do you feel about Dansby Swanson's potential to move up in value and maybe start being uh, one of those premium guys that we all want to have? I, I don't see it yet. Um, like, I think, I mean, in like an NL only league, yes, this is still a player I'd have some interest in, but I, I just think he's a couple years away from being a useful fantasy hitter. Like he's definitely going to be a bottom of the order guy. He doesn't have much power and he doesn't have much speed. I just, I, I don't see anything here for fantasy purposes. And even when he's, as he gets better, I I think he'll still probably be more of that better in real life than in fantasy things. So I'm, I'm not excited about him. And finally, Edwin Encarnacion of Cleveland has always been a pretty slow starter, but it's been going on a little longer than we expected this year, and he's still under $10 in value. He's only batting two oh five, and his walk rate, this is a worrisome thing to me, Dave. Uh, it's always been double digits the last six seasons. This year, barely above 7% walk rate. How worried should owners be about Edwin Encarnacion? Yeah, I think this is a real worry, and I, I hate that. Like, I love this guy. Um I, I think 
the walks are down and the strikeouts are up. Um, and both of those things are kind of the first two things that will probably get real as far as sample size. The power is still there. I mean, I fully still expect 35 homers and 100 RBIs. But I do think, I mean, this, this batting average, like the 258 he was at last year, I don't, I don't see any way he even gets up to that. I, I do think that we're looking at more of the real true drain on your batting average 220 guy. Still with plenty of power and he'll get plenty of RBIs in that lineup. Um, but it's probably not going to be worth what you paid for him and, or what I paid for him because I did pay for him, and he's not, he's not going to return that value. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Dave Potts from Roto-Grinder. And Dave, uh, we've also seen some unusual early season from some pitchers and perhaps nobody more at the top of the table than Patrick Corbin and Sean Manaya, both of whom are around $20 in 5 by 5 value, and I'll bet that's a big profit for most of the people who bought them. Let's start with Patrick Corbin in Arizona. How do you assess him as a breakout who could sustain this level of performance? Corbin's a really tricky one. Um, obviously, came out of the gate just on fire with throwing an insane amount of sliders. Um, something that I've noticed, you know, doing the DFS stuff, and I know it's been talked about elsewhere, like his velocity has dropped suddenly and sharply in his last three starts. But he's still striking guys out like more than a batter per inning in that time. Um, I, I don't think there's any way he sustains anything close to this. And I am a little worried that he went a little overboard early in the season. And I mean, I guess I don't think he's hurt because the, you know, the diamondbacks with Ray and Walker already out are not going to throw out an injured pitcher. Um, but I, I don't like when you see a guy's velocity just definitely and clearly drop um, this early in the season. And, and he's given up, you know, a lot of hard hits. Like, I feel like he's sort of living on the edge of we're looking at what he did in those first few starts, and there's no way that can be sustainable. Um, I do like him. I, I mean, I'm not surprised that he's, you know, taken a step up from last year, but, man, just like looking at what the strikeout rate is to this point in the season, I, I don't see any way that's even partially real. Any concern about the uh, Tommy John situation, the fact he missed a year already and um, the velocity has been implicated in that, uh, also sliders have been implicated in uh, those same kinds of elbow troubles. Uh, any concern on that front? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of why the you know the velocity drop has me feeling less than all warm and fuzzy. <laughs> like a guy with an injury history throwing this many sliders and whatever's not a slider is a curveball. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm nervous. I, I I don't know if it's warranted, but I, I just I don't like I don't like what I'm seeing. And how about Sean Manaya? So he's kind of uh, a little different in that I do like what I'm seeing, but there's no question that everything has just gone his way, and he's not this good. Like the ERA is a clear, obvious fluke. Like he's just simply got a 205 BABIP, and that's like the whole story. I love the low walks, and that makes me think, you know, even when the Babbitt comes up, which it will, he'll still be pretty good. But the strikeouts just haven't gone anywhere. I mean, this is a very dull, below-average strikeout pitcher his whole career, which is three years now. 
Like, I don't think the strikeouts are going to be a thing this season. Um, and when the Babbitt comes up, I think he's just an above-average pitcher. Again, I love the control. I think he's, he's very good. I like the ballpark. I wouldn't be surprised with a, you know, eventually I think the strikeouts come up, but they're not coming up right now. So I feel like he's a guy who would be happy to trade at full value if someone wanted him. But, I, I, you know, he's not a guy I'm worried about. I think he's just a pretty good pitcher that everything's gone right for him so far. Not quite at the same level as Corbin and Manaya have been so far, but still a very pleasant surprise for his owners, most of whom would have got him in the end game, maybe even reserve rounds in mixed leagues. I got him for a dollar or two, I think, in tout uh, single league format. Mike Clevenger of Cleveland. Yeah, that, um, it's weird when a guy's strikeouts drop and his walks drop, which is what we have here. Like, I always wonder, is it just simply that he can only do one or the other? Um, like, he can either be a strikeout guy with high walks, or he can manage the walks and the strikeouts go down. And either one is, is a fine pitcher. Um, but kind of like with, with Manaya, to me, he looks like a, a totally fine, pretty good pitcher that just has been very lucky this year. The, the thing that jumps out about him is a 4% home run to fly ball rate. Um, I mean, that's, that's not going to continue. Uh, you know, if you look at his ERA versus his expected ERA, I, I think he's just totally fine. I don't think you need to go out of your way to trade for him or get rid of him. Um, I think it, things are going to even out, and he'll be a pretty good pitcher. Huh, I'm a bit surprised you say that. Uh, the last time I checked, uh, Clevenger was around a 270 ERA, and his uh, FIP at least was 277, which is kind of in line. I know that there are some indicators that FIP doesn't catch, but uh, why the worry on top of that? So it depends if you're a FIP or an ex-FIP guy, because that's all about the home run to fly ball rate. If you don't think the home runs are going to come, then then yes, you would want him. Um I see his ex fips three eighty four. That that's how I see him because okay. I don't I don't see any reason to think he's not going to allow league average home runs, um, and that's that's really the whole difference for me. Because um, it's average strikeouts right now, and I feel like he's got to choose between the strikeouts and the walks. And I I just I don't see I don't see him as a guy that's so good that he could do something to bring home runs down this low. We talked earlier about evaluating rebounding veterans like Nick Marcakis on the pitching side. How about Rick Porcello of Boston? Had the Cy Young year, then kind of stank the joint out. This year he's at 328 ERA, a whip right around one, and he's got five wins, although I know probably nobody should count wins that heavily. But he's pitching well this year after not pitching well the last year. I'm fully on board with Porcello in real life. He's still kind of one of those, regardless of which year you look at, you know, better in real life than in fantasy. Um, he's had a couple bad starts the last couple weeks, although even the last one wasn't really even that bad. Um, I think the guy's fantastic. And I think last year was the fluke, kind of like where I say last year was the outlier in a good way for Ozuna. I think last year was just the outlier in the bad way for Porcello. Um, I mean, he's pitching exactly like the guy who won the Cy Young Award. And that wouldn't make him a Cy Young fantasy pitcher. Again, you know, the strikeouts aren't at that level. Um, but as far as a guy to count on for ratios, uh, I'm, I'm fully on board with him. 
Yeah, I was looking at the Cy Young year and then comparing it with this year as well. And one of the things that jumped out at me is that the batting average against and the uh, uh, OPS against are right around the same, in fact, a little bit better this year. And it seems like whatever he was doing then, he seems to be doing again now. Although I have to say I had uh, I had Porcello in his Cy Young year and the big the big source of his value was wins and, and they're not as predictable. But uh, are they predictable to the extent you can say a good pitcher, not a great pitcher, but a good pitcher on a pretty solid team like Boston you can kind of sort of expect to get more wins than you might otherwise expect from another guy? Yeah, I think that's another one of those things that we all just say, but I'm not sure that it's true that wins are entirely unpredictable. I mean, they're, they're a much flukier stat than, than the other categories, but let's not pretend like the exact same pitcher wouldn't win more games with the Red Sox than with the White Sox. I mean... I think you can you can count on wins to some extent. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I, I guess that's just another one of those things. People say it, but it doesn't necessarily make it true. On the downside, we've had some big names in the preseason, guys who are being looked at favorably by the touts and experts, and they're currently rocking ERAs over 7, whips around 2, and value below negative $13 on Baseball HQ. I'm talking particularly about Alex Cobb, Marcus Stroman, and Lance Lynn. Uh, of those three, if anyone, who do you like? Out of these guys, I, I'm way out on Lynn and Cobb for sure. Like, Lance Lynn... Um, he used to be a pretty good pitcher. He, the walks have been they, they crept up a little bit, and they crept up a little bit more last year, and they've like exploded to just an unacceptable level this year. Um, I just cannot deal with the guy who walks that many batters. Um, maybe maybe he all of a sudden brings it back, but I you know it will be on somebody else's team if it happens. Um, Alex Cobb. I'm really rooting for the guy. Like I, I loved him when you know before he got injured. But right now, if you just can't strike anybody out, like just nobody, I kind of don't care what else you can do. Like it's just unacceptable to have a pitcher on your team that strikes out fewer guys than I do. It's just it's just not okay. Um, Stroman, maybe if in fact. It was as simple as shoulder fatigue, which I believe is what they said, right. and not anything structural, and maybe he just needed a rest. Um, you know, he still has the elite ground balls. Anyone with, you know, that kind of ground ball rate and at least decent strikeout ability, and he doesn't walk a lot of guys typically, I- I'm willing to wait and see if maybe he just needed a little time off and maybe there's nothing structurally wrong. And he did have just sort of a, for whatever reason came out of the gate with some, you know, feeling off in his shoulder, but it's not an actual injury. Um, I'm, I'm kind of on a wait and see with him. I, and he's definitely someone I'm, I'm stashing if possible. And we'll close out this segment, uh, Dave, by asking about two more pitchers, uh, starting pitchers, from whom better things were expected in the preseason. I saw a lot of positive press about Sonny Gray, and I saw a lot of positive press about Danny Duffy. And in both cases, you know, it was kind of betting on the come, and so far it ain't coming. Yeah, the Sonny Gray thing, I, I, 
what what bothers me, obviously the the huge increase in walks and the drop in strikeouts, those are just you know, the worst thing you can do. That bothers me. But when I dig into um, his pitches, it looks to me like he's just guessing at what he's throwing. Like he's totally playing around with his pitch mix. He's kind of sometimes he's added this cutter. He's not throwing as many sinkers, or then he is this start, or then he's going to throw some sliders. Like I don't, I don't feel like he knows what he's doing. Um, and it, it wouldn't stun me if he figures it out and gets back to being an average pitcher. But that's kind of the upside is average. And I don't want to chase a guy who looks broken right now whose upside is an average pitcher in Yankee Stadium. So I, I'm, I'm out on him. And then, you know, Duffy, Duffy hurts me. I, I desperately want Duffy to happen. Um, I'm pretty highly invested. I thought it was going to happen. But he's just simply not there. Um, it's like we're all waiting to see this repeat of what happened for just a really short amount of time a couple of years ago. And it was awesome when he was, when he was on his game for that stretch in 2016, he was, he was pretty unbelievable. Um, but he's just simply not there. And like, I'm not going to cut him in like a 15 team league or certainly an AL only league, but he's pretty much just riding the bench until something changes. And I'm not going to go out and trade for him. I, I, I'm, I'm worried with just a, a small hint of hope and it's basically hope for no reason. Well, Dave, this has been great. Uh, can we get you into the dugout for a breather and then have you come back into the game a little later? That sounds great. Dave Potts writes for Roto Grinders and he's one of the most successful fantasy players ever. He'll be back a little later in the show, but coming up next are market watch reports with player news from the national league and the American league coming up on baseball HQ radio. They're waiting for the numbers to change. There it goes. Cal Ripken comes out, raises his arm with a cap, and here is the ovation that he gets. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report and Baseball HQ analyst and our old friend at Baseball HQ Radio, it's Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. Lots of news this week. And most of it bad, of course, for fantasy owners and for Major League Baseball players. More and more injuries, and we start in Pittsburgh, where top fantasy producer Starling Marte is off to a terrific start this year. He's a top 10 type of player. He goes on to the DL with a right oblique strain. And to make the story more interesting, top prospect Austin Meadows has been called up. Uh, first, though, Nick, what's likely to happen with Starling Marte and the Pittsburgh outfield situation with this injury? The Pirates don't consider the injury to be too severe, uh, although sometimes oblique strains can linger. But uh, at this point, they are, we're only cutting his playing time back by 5%. Uh, should be back fairly soon, hopefully in two to three weeks. All right, so they called up Austin Meadows. I know he's a top prospect. What's the story with Austin Meadows? The reports say that this will likely be a very short-term call-up for Meadows. Uh was profiled in the daily call-ups column. He's 23 years old, uh, our number 44 prospect at Baseball HQ and Pittsburgh's number two prospect. A real five-to-a player who's had his own injury problems, and that have slowed him down. And that's why he's still in the minor leagues. As a prospect, no real weaknesses, decent speed, good defense are his worst skills. Uh, and uh, power is very real. And batting skills are excellent. Uh, 6'3", 210 pounds. Uh, career 291 hitter in the minors, 
good walk rates, solid contact rates. Uh, should be able to put up some decent numbers in the majors as well. Last year only appeared in 81 games because of hamstring and oblique injuries. And truthfully, his batting line that year was subpar for what he's capable of. If he stays healthy, he could put up double-digit home runs and steals while he plays solid defense. But, you know, there's something to think about. Uh, an interesting tweet a few minutes ago from Nick Richards. Uh, one of the interesting features about the Baseball HQ website is they, they uh, run a, a, a scroll of tweets from HQ staff at the side. And Richards says, should you pick up Meadows? In a dynasty league, he's already gone. In a redraft league, the talent is there, but the opportunity we'll see. But don't be shocked if he goes down when Marte is back. Yeah, that's what I thought too, especially if Marte comes back quickly. But as you mentioned, these oblique injuries have a way of lingering around, and they do affect the uh, ability of the player to tor- torque his body, to move his torso through that rotational type of uh, movement that generates all his power. So it uh, could be Marte comes back soon, but the lingering effects might uh, curtail his ability to produce a little bit. In Arizona, the outfielder A.J. Pollock is once again on the DL. This time he has a broken thumb. Boy, this guy, boy. I don't know. He's got a voodoo doll somewhere with somebody sticking pins in it or driving a Humvee across him or something. But the Diamondbacks recalled infielder Christian Walker. Rob Carroll covered the story for playing time today. What are the ramifications of Pollock's latest injury in a career full of them? Pollock's thumb injury did fall within the worst-case scenario as, as uh, Revisa Seth was now having missing anywhere between four and eight weeks. Uh, we kind of try, have taken the midpoint at this week, saying six weeks on the shelf. Uh, Pollock's 96 BPV is a full third better than any other Diamondback. And so they're really going to miss him. Fantasy owners will sure miss him. So far for Pollock, 11 home runs, 9 stolen bases, a 969 OPS, each within the top 15 in Major League Baseball, um, headed for a, a an MVP-type season uh, before this injury. Uh, in the two games since the injury, center field has been manned by Chris Owens and Jared Dyson, and neither one has distinguished himself. Uh, Owens, uh, 40, uh, R speed culminating in one theft, uh, 85 PX producing a pair of, uh, home runs, uh, has still has a repressed hit rate, 27%. So maybe some better outcomes ahead for, for Owens, uh, Dyson's five stolen bases trail only Pollock on the Diamondbacks. So when he, when he's on base, he can run, but a minuscule hit rate, 19% hit rate. So at this point, Dyson's being held back by the hit rate, a 184 batting average, a 256 expected batting average, but could be some fantasy help because of those stolen bases, if he can get on base. Uh, for now, uh, Arizona appears resigned to using those two in a center field job share, although a perennial outfield prospect Socrates Brito is having fun at AAA Reno, 317 batting average, seven stolen bases, and 145 at-bats. However, Brito failed to make a 2017 appearance for Arizona after a dismal 40 games for them in 2016, 179 batting average. So their trust level in Brito could be a bit low. And what about the call-up Christian Walker? Uh, this is call-up Walker's second round with the team this year. Uh, first baseman has a home run among uh, a pair of hits and 13 at-bats. Uh, he'll be a bench bat as uh, Paul Goldschmidt continues to work his way out of a, out of a poor start in 2018, at least for now. Another high-impact injury situation in Colorado where second baseman D.J. LeMahieu has gone on the DL with what was first called a hand injury, then was more specifically called a sprained thumb, bad enough. Rob Carroll covered the story for Playing Time Today. Brian Slack followed up in his National League West coverage in Playing Time tomorrow. Then late Thursday night, the news got still worse. NBC Sports reported that LeMahieu also has a slightly broken wrist. What's the situation in the Keystone in Colorado? 
Boy, and was Brian Slack on top of this, looking down the road at what could happen if, if uh, LeMayu was out longer than expected. Still some uncertainty with regards to the severity of the injury. Uh, I saw reports last night that said that this uh, the, the wrist uh, fracture will not require surgery, and that's a positive thing. Uh, but uh, And so we don't have a potential timetable. But anything significant could force the team to consider other options because short-term answer has been Daniel Castro. Uh, he's a glove first infielder whose profile, even hitting in Coors, doesn't offer much reason for optimism. Uh, and they'll also give some playing time to Pat Valaika, who has a 113 batting average this season and 62 at bats. That's 113 and 62 at bats. No home runs. Two runs scored. Uh, that's the high point of his, of his little stat line. Uh, one RBI, no steals, not much fantasy help there. And this is on a team that, uh, that is in, uh, in contending position at this point in the season. Well, you mentioned there's some uncertainty about this because they are a, a team with aspirations to make the playoffs, and they're not going to do it with anybody hitting 113 in any kind of regular role on the roster. So do they see any help in the minors? Brian Slack says that two names come to mind. The most interesting possibility is top prospect Ryan McMahon, a first baseman who was sent down after a really bad start. And at this point, McMahon is getting second base reps at AAA Albuquerque. So there must be something going on in the minds of the brass here. He had 23 starts to second base last year as well. As covered in Ryan Bloomfield's recent speculator column, the Rockies had a real stir when they kept McMahon on the opening day roster, but he never really gained much traction uh, in, in his one month with the big league club. He went just nine for 50. That's a 180 batting average. No home runs, uh, a low 56% contact rate after he had an 82% contact rate last year in AAA. Uh, and didn't exactly exactly hit the ground running once he got down to AAA, uh, either a combined 255 batting average, two home runs, 14 strikeouts, four walks in his first 55 at-bats. But starting on May the 16th, he began to, things began to heat up a little bit. Multi-hit games in six of his last 10, including his first two home runs of the year. Uh, the 23-year-old has been one of the team's best hitters in spring training. Uh, 355-403-583 line in AAA last year. So he has a huge amount of upside. The other interesting possibility is second base prospect Garrett Hampson, who is an intriguing speculation, the team's number eight prospect. Recently mentioned uh, in Stephen Nickran's Batter's Buyer Guide column because uh, to call attention to his, his prospect status for those of us looking down the road. Currently hitting 307 at 865 OPS. Four home runs, 19 stolen bases, and one caught stealing in 36 games at AA. be interesting to see if he can sustain his power as he goes forward, but uh, athleticism and hit tool are exciting. Uh, the speed is obviously exciting and could get him a call up at some point later this season. Oh boy, the speed is really exciting because of the paucity of stolen bases across Major League Baseball. A guy who can steal 19 out of 20 uh, with any regularity would certainly be a, a guy to target. Of course, he has to fight his way past McMahon, and that depends on how McMahon handles the fielding aspect, too, I expect. Uh, two injuries hit the Milwaukee Brewers. We can talk about Stephen Vogt, the catcher. He's out for the year. We'll do that in a minute. Bigger news has to do with uh, outfielder first baseman Ryan Braun, who went back on the DL. He has continuing back trouble. Tom Kephart covered both of these stories for playing time today. Let's start with the scoop on Braun. Yeah, you know, as, as a fellow back, back injury sufferer, I really feel for him. Those things can get you down and keep you down for a long time. Um at the moment, uh, right fielder Domingo Santana and first baseman Jesus Aguilar like will start virtually every game with uh, with Braun uh, on the DL. Uh, utility player Hernan Perez could see a slight bump in playing time as well. 
he becomes the fourth outfielder in the current uh, roster configuration. Uh, Aguilar has been more productive than Braun so far with an 877 OPS to Braun's 681 OPS. Um, Braun hit five April home runs. The last one came on April the 20th. Uh, currently mired in a six for 46 slump that goes back to April 27th. Uh, career low contact rate, XBA, XPX, hit a hard contact index. So lows across the board for Braun at this point. Aguilar has cooled off after a really hot start to the season. His contact rate has slipped. Uh, he flashed an uncustomary 81% contact rate in April, uh, back now down to an overall 71% contact rate. That's still an improvement from 2017, and he continues to display power that is well above average. Uh, Domingo Santana has yet to display the power that got him 30 home runs in 2017, uh, and perhaps some worry there making much weaker contact, currently showing a career-high ground ball rate, a career-low fly ball rate, a 213 expected batting average, and that looms ominously for Santana. His 258 batting average is largely a product of a 37% hit rate, Uh, but he has a history of of high hit rates, so maybe things will come back up. 9% home run per fly, well below 27% career home run per fly level, so maybe some uptick there. Hernan Perez is showing less power than he did in 2016-17. 241 expected batting average, suggesting there's absolutely no batting average upside for Perez. So it sounds like it's a little mishmash of Domingo Santana and Jesus Aguilar be the two guys to look at. Uh, I imagine in in deep leagues they'll already be gone, but certainly something to look at in mixers. Uh, That 37% hit rate of Santana, I don't think he's been in the big leagues long enough for us to say with any confidence that a particular hit rate has been established by this individual player. We did research a few years ago that suggested that after three years you can get a pretty good line on how a guy's hit rate should be, and it's not always around the same as uh, pitchers 30%. Some good hitters who hit the ball hard have higher hit rates. Well, soft contact guys have lower hit rates. 37% though seems pretty high for Domingo Santana. Um, but like you said, you never know. Maybe it's what he is and and that could be good. Uh, catcher Stephen Vote, I mentioned, uh, will undergo season-ending shoulder surgery this week after he suffered damage to his shoulder while making a throw, oddly enough, during a rehab assignment last weekend. Uh, what's the story with Stephen Vote and who gets the uh, time behind the plate? Well, his season-ending injury assures the starting catcher, uh, Manny Pena, is going to get a heavier workload uh, and will get uh, contact challenge Jeff Bandy an extended opportunity to establish himself as the backup. Uh, Pena's depressed hit rate and 265 expected effort, batting average suggest that his current 220 BA is likely to rise. So maybe it's a little bit of upside for Pena there. He's showing higher contact rate than he did uh, a year ago, uh, which was his first major league season. Uh first full season, at least, in the majors. Uh, Bandy has a 212 expected batting average and a 0.11i. Little hope there. Uh, you don't want him on your fantasy roster. Uh, and may, uh, if the Brewer, if the Brewers have much uh, 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 opportunity as a backup, they're going to put Pena in and use Bandy only to spell Pena occasionally. And even on, a, even on those occasions, he's not the kind of guy you want on your roster, that's for sure. Uh, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out with the National League. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at Baseball HQ and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here. 
we got a couple of double whammies to open up our American League news report. The big news of the past week comes out of Seattle. Robinson Cano got the old double whammy. First he breaks his hand, then after he goes on the DL, he gets hit with a 80-game suspension for violating the drug agreement. Uh, that means he's going to be out till mid-August and ineligible for the playoffs. Obviously, Robinson Cano owners are really left with a huge gap in their roster. The Mariners, too, they might even be worse off. Rod Truesdell covers the Mariners for playing time today. What is Seattle going to do with this second base situation? Well, since the injury and since uh, Cano's been out, they've used uh, Gordon Beckham. They've called him out. I think he, at least right now, he looks like the semi-regular there. Andrew Romine has played a game since Cano's uh, been off the roster. Uh, Obviously, Beckham is... He's one of those X number one can't miss draft picks that actually missed. Uh, he hasn't uh, hit over 226 in the majors since 2014. He actually only had 17 at bats in the majors last year. He hit 176. He was doing a little bit better at uh, at AAA this year for uh, the Mariners. I think he was hitting 300. Uh, good walk to strikeout ratio, 19 to 14. Um, I guess pedigree wise, he's a crapshoot, but at 31, 32. Um, you know, you got to wonder. Um, I, I'm kind of guessing that Seattle is burning up the trade wires right now, first for second baseman, but also for outfielders since they aren't deep there. And, and they're talking about how D. Gordon could see some time back at his original second base position, maybe become an everyday super utility between center and second if this happens. But uh, when you look at all of the, the second baseman available on on MLB teams out there. Um, you've got Brandon Phillips. He's a free agent. Uh, you've got that Spangenberg, Aswahe, Perella, Glut in San Diego. Devin Travis in Toronto. Logan Forsythe here in LA. I think the Yankees would part with Neil Walker right now. I, I just have a feeling that adding better than, than Beckham what they have doesn't look impossible, and it's something to watch probably because of the opportunity. There's also been some talk uh, on the tout uh, wires and uh Sirius XM and so forth about Taylor Motter maybe getting another opportunity. Um, there's a lot of ways they could go, and I guess everybody who's in a, an American League only league in particular is going to be sitting by their computer waiting for the news to hit that somebody's got the job because there's going to be some playing time there. I'm I'm going to bet that D Gordon moves back. It seems like the logical thing, and outfielders are easier to find. And if they try to get, uh, well, you see, I don't know if you mentioned Scooter Jeanette's another guy, one of those San Diego guys. Uh, Neil Walker, this cost them something, right? They got to trade something to get one of those guys. Phillips is a free agent. I don't know if he even wants to play. And uh, I don't know. It seems like it would be easier for them to put together an outfield. I could be wrong about that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I obviously have to look at the, the entire inventory, which I don't have in front of me right now. But uh, what you're saying makes sense. You know, Motter's a guy that I probably have liked in the past more than I should have. I think his biggest problem is he, he tries to pull the ball. But his plate skills have never been as bad as his major league batting average would suggest. Uh, boy, if he could just – he could get right. He's an athlete. Uh, he has some power um, when he's when he's, uh, when he's he's right. Uh, they've uh, – yeah, I, I just think they have better than Gordon Beckham somewhere. 
When you look at their outfield, uh, you you see guys like Gamel and Heredia and Hanniger's having a terrific year. Of course, uh, certainly that they they've got a starting outfield that they can uh, that they can use even if they move D Gordon out of the outfield full time. They're not exactly struggling. That's what I that's what I think I'm getting at is that you know they have more outfield options than they have infield options basically, and better players if they run that combination out than almost anything else they can do short of going and getting somebody else. Yeah, I'm not, beyond Hanniger, if they move Gordon into the infield, I'm not really thrilled with their outfield. I mean, yeah, you've got Heredia who can hit righties, but he's, I'm sorry, he can hit lefties, but he's really woeful against uh, righties. And I'm not convinced Gamble can hit anyone anymore. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what the Mariners do. Another veteran getting the old double whammy was Texas third baseman Adrian Beltre. This poor guy, he goes on the DL with a hamstring injury, then he comes back to play and almost immediately gets whammied again with the recurrence of the same injury. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the third time in the last season and a half or so. I remember late last summer he, he seemed to have the same hamstring issue. They did get some good news in Texas. Rugnet Odor comes back to play second baseman, but geez, Jock, this Texas infield still looks to me like a mess. Uh, Rod Trusdell covers the Rangers for playing time today. You cover the Rangers in the longer term for playing time tomorrow. You're the American League West guy. So what's the situation in Arlington? Well, they've got... Uh, uh uh, Keener Falefa um, back back from his uh, very short duty as a bench utility. That's where Odor's return put him. He'd been subbing for Odor. Um, now he's going to fill in for Beltre. It looks like at least he's been the starter since uh, since Beltre's out. Uh, Hanser Alberto gets Beltre's roster spot. Uh, he's he's pretty awful. He's got a sub 200 batting average and 154 major league at bats. Uh, this is not a real good offense with Beltre out. I, I wrote in my column this week that uh, the, the the best upgrade they have will probably depend on when, when Willie Calhoun decides to go on a tear at AAA uh, and when the Rangers decide both his bat and defense are ready to call him up. Uh, right now, I think um, Calhoun has really been up and down You know, there. His power hasn't really gotten off the schneid yet. He only has three home runs and 153 at-bats. He'd gone about a week uh, getting a couple hits a game almost, but now I'm looking at the looking at his recent games. He's 0 for his last 12, so um, he's not doing anything to make the Rangers bring him up. And and the reason that could work if the if the Rangers uh, did recall him is they could move um, Joey Gallo back to the infield, back to third base, and stick uh, Keener Falefa back on the bench where he's probably best at playing some sort of utility role. The problem is, I, I heard the other day that Joey Gallo ha- told the media in Texas he doesn't want to go and play third base. So that means they'd have to move him to first base, and that creates a new round of trouble because they still they still need a third baseman somewhere. And uh, Willie Calhoun, for all of his uh, vaunted hitting ability, as you said, he hasn't been hitting, and his defense is really suspect. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't know that about Gallo, but that really creates problems for for. Texas if if Gallup really doesn't want to play third base at all particularly in the in the long term because once Beltre is is done and his contract ends this year when he's 40 years old I don't think they have a uh, an obvious third baseman there there's one name that interests me a little bit a guy named Andy Ibanez he's a he's a, a Cuban import who's been in the Texas season now for two plus years this is third year he's He's kind of a bat-to-ball guy. His skills aren't great. Uh, he doesn't get a lot of notice, but he's he's hitting well at AAA right now. He's got a good walk-to-strikeout ratio. Um, I think his defense might be an issue. He's a second baseman by trade, and he's only average there. Uh, but 
if you're looking at an offensive upside over what the Rangers have now at third base, it's probably better than uh, Keener Falefa. And there's a ringing endorsement from Jock Thompson. Uh, <laughs> in Anaheim, the Angels saves leader Keenan Middleton has been lost to the team for this year and a good chunk of next year. He's going to have Tommy John surgery, fix a bulky elbow. Uh, this bullpen is almost as big a mess as the Texas infield, Jock. Uh, you cover the Angels for Baseball HQ. As a team analyst, uh, which reliever would you bet on to get whatever saves are coming in Anaheim? You know, if you put a gun to my head, I'm going to say an arm not yet in the organization. Um, I, I just think the Angels have to make a trade here if they're serious about uh, staying in contention. Um, the guy in the organization that I like right now who's pitching best in that bullpen is Blake Parker. He started off really badly. He was actually the closer coming out of spring training, as you know. But he had a terrible spring training, and he had a bad April as well. He lost the job. But in his last seven, eight games, he's finally rediscovered that command that uh, that won him the closer job at the end of last year. Uh um, let me see. I think he's uh, he's basically in his last seven appearances. He's he's uh, he hasn't given up any runs in in seven plus innings. He's struck out twelve hitters. Has walked two. Uh, to me, he's the guy that that looks like is going to win that closer role. Now now Mike Sosha might disagree. He would like to see uh, uh, Justin uh, Justin Anderson the 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 rookie that they brought up uh, a few weeks ago uh, maybe win a late inning and roll the and the problem I have with Anderson he's got good stuff I've seen him pitch is good velocity in the high 90s uh, the problem is is his track record and experience he doesn't have a lot of experience in relief uh, his velocity has only jumped in the last year and he's having trouble with his control so I I think he's going to be an e-ticket I think of the but I think of the names in the in the organization now Parker and Anderson are probably the best bets. I find it interesting to look at all these guys' skills. Anderson's got the big, big dom rate, 13.1 strikeouts per nine. Uh, Noe Ramirez, 12.2, uh, is right behind there. What do we think about him? Yeah, Ramirez is good. I think the problem that the Angels have with Ramirez is he's 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 kind of light velocity-wise. Uh, his dom isn't quite up there with, with Anderson's, obviously, or even Parker's right now um, yet, but... Um, they also like Ramirez in a, in a role where he can go multiple innings because Lord knows the Angels need that. And Ramirez has been very good this year, as you've said. So you're right. It wouldn't surprise me if all else fails to see Ramirez gravitate more to the late innings as well. And whatever happened to Cam Bedrosian, we started talking about him back when Rod Carew was playing for the Angels, it seems like. And every year it was, oh, just wait till Cam Bedrosian's there. Oh, just hold on till you see Cam Bedrosian. And year after year, here's Cam Bedrosian not getting the job done. Yeah, ever since that injury last year, early last year, Cam Bedrosian has been really inconsistent, and that continues now. The problem with Bedrosian now is he's not missing bats anymore. Um, they're not swinging at his, at his slider. He's been very inconsistent in, in controlling it and in burying it in the, at the right point in, in counts. Uh, you, uh, you look at his uh, swinging strike rate, and it's, it's just really dived from what it used to be. I don't have a lot of confidence in Bedrosian. His velocity has wavered, too. Uh, he, he's just not getting hitters out anymore. And one last name to mention, what about Jose Alvarez? Uh, he's got a 4.2 command ratio, 4.2 strikeouts for every walk, and that's pretty much the best in the bullpen out there. Yeah, I agree. Um, he's, he's with uh, Noe Ramirez. Uh, he's, he's been in middle relief. They're starting to move him up a little bit uh, late. Uh, I, yeah, I think Jose Alvarez is, is another option, but again, he's, he's not ideal for that late inning situation. And of course, uh, this is all great, except most fantasy formats don't allow you to roster 
every one of these guys you got to pick and choose, and that's where the trouble comes in. Uh, finally, in Minnesota, the Twins lost catcher Jason Castro for the year after he uh, did some meniscus surgery, and they found really bad damage in the knee. Uh, Rick Green covers the Twins for playing time today. So are there any opportunities arising here for fantasy owners? Um, you know, probably in, in deep two-catcher leagues. Um, I like Mitch Garver. Uh, he, he kind of... Uh, Woke up last year. Uh, his bat, uh, he hit the um, he started to generate some power uh, last year. I think it. Uh, where was it? At? Was it at AAA? Yeah, yeah. It was at AAA Rochester. He had he had 17 home runs and 320 at bats last year. Hit 291. Um, his stock really rose, and he hasn't been that bad this year. Um, uh, he's got very good patience. Uh, Last year he had a 12% walk rate uh, in 46 at bats in Minnesota, and he did he did something similar at AAA. Um, he's hitting 254 and 63 at bats. His walk rate is a little bit down this year. Hard contact rate is good. Um, power uh, power index 109, uh, a touch above average. Um, possible he could help in like I said in deep two catcher leagues. It, it's going to be interesting. Bobby Wilson is his platoon mate, and Wilson has been pretty mediocre in his career I, I think the twins are probably going to look outside to see if they can find help but there's been a rash of catcher injuries injuries in both leagues uh, recently uh, and the supply wasn't wasn't very good to begin with so I think the the twins might be stuck with these two I don't think they're stuck too much with uh, with Garver as you suggested he seems to be doing all right with the bat but Wilson holy moly this is a this is trouble on the hoof a 167 on base percentage this year so far and a 400 slugging, which isn't that bad, but 567 OPS, he barely walks, he strikes out a ton. I don't think Bobby Wilson's any help at all. Uh, I I shouldn't even really mention this, but is there any chance at all Joe Maurer goes back behind the plate? I kind of doubt that. I think, what is he now in his his mid-30s? I think the Twins are happy that Maurer is hitting again just from you know, from the first base DH spot. I don't think they'd risk that one. I didn't think so either, but boy, what a story it would be is all of a sudden then at first base they can put almost anybody, including Miguel Sano when he comes back. You know, it's one of those moves that on paper it seems like a great idea, and if you had him in a fantasy league where he retained some catcher eligibility, there's leagues I know about that uh, a career kind of uh, position eligibility applies and you can keep Joe Maurer a catcher, it would be a big help. Uh, not going to happen probably in, in real life, though. Uh, I said finally, this is finally in Kansas City, first baseman Lucas Duda has been forced to the DL with plantar fasciitis. Ouch. This is a bad thing, Jock. Uh, we've had uh, Albert Poole holes we had mark mcguire a lot of guys get this uh, get this problem and it seems to be bigger heavier guys the injury puts duda's entire season into question and he's uh not really getting things going anyway but he was seemed to be picking things up matt dodge covers kansas city for playing time today jock what are the royals going to do at first base while lucas duda is out of action well, you're right. I, I think this is a big blow for Kansas City because they're one of those teams that uh, they should be on a on a complete rebuild. I think that's what they're doing. The the re-signing of Mustakas makes me makes me wonder. Although they got him fairly cheaply, um, they've got Hunter Dozier at first base for now, at least since uh, Duda's been out of the lineup. And and Dozier took uh, Duda's roster spot. In fact. Uh, Dozier was one of those guys who was a high draft pick, and they thought he had big power potential, but he really hasn't shown much of it in the minors. Uh, um, he, he's got good good plate patience. Uh, I think at 24 walks in his first 142 at-bats at AAA this year. Um, but 
just one home run uh, and he's going to turn 27 in August so uh, you know my take is if we haven't seen much in the way of power now we're probably probably not going to be I, I, I don't see uh, I don't see Dozier etched in stone at first base uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if Kansas City tries to, to find another first base option via trade uh, I just uh, again, this is this is one of those situations. The KC first base spot, like you said, plantar fasciitis uh, can be a, a year killer, and it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me if it keeps Duda down for most of the season. Uh, um, I, I, I think this is one of those situations that if Kansas City makes the right move, somebody's going to jump into some playing time, and and that somebody could be fantasy valuable. I just don't see who it is right now. On the Baseball HQ depth charts, it looks like they're splitting the time at first base three ways between uh, apparently they're still playing on Duda coming back at some point, getting 30% of the first base time, Dozier getting 35 and how about Chesler Cuthbert? Yeah, you know, I, I hadn't looked at Cutler, but you're right. Uh, Cutler's, Cutler's a third baseman by trade. He could move over to first. Uh, he has flashed some hitting skills in, in the past. Uh, not great power. He's nothing special. But, boy, like you said, when you look at that playing time, balconized uh, 30, 30, 30, whatever it is, uh, Cutler's probably the most versatile there. If you're going to take a chance on any of these guys, it might be Cutler. If Duda were healthy, obviously Duda would be better than any of them, but that's not the case right now. All right, Jock, a lot of useful information there. A lot of wait and see, unfortunately, for fantasy players, but it's good to know what's going on. I appreciate it, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Okay, PD, see you then. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and writes regularly for the site as well. When we return our Baseball HQ commentaries, we'll have the Minor League Minute and Frequent Flyer coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now it's time in the show and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say with confidence that BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Facts and Flukes Spotlight this week, Stephen Nickrand does a deep-dive analysis of Tampa left-handed starter Blake Snell. In the Reliever's Buyer's Guide, bullpen's columnist Doug Dennis looks at filtering for the top base performance indicators in the bullpens around the leagues. And in research, Jeffrey Zimmerman looks at when major league teams should cut bait on underperformers. And those are just three articles, and there are dozens more. This is just a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all season long, and why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Thanks for listening. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the Frequent Flyer, and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Mets first base prospect Peter Alonso is Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon. The New York Mets' Peter Alonso is in the midst of an impressive breakout season. The 23-year-old first base prospect was a second-round pick in 2016 after a standout career at the University of Florida. Scouts loved the raw power, but initially had mixed reviews about his ability to hit for average. An adjustment to shorten his swing during his draft year in college put those concerns to rest, and Alonso slashed 321 with a 382 on base percentage and a 587 slugging percentage in his pro debut. Alonso followed that up with a solid full season at low and high A last year, where he hit 289 with 18 home runs and just 353 at bats. Defensively, Alonso is limited to first base, where he's a fringe defender with below average speed. Right-handed hitting first base only prospects tend to have a tough time making it in the majors, but Alonzo has the plus raw power and ability to barrel the ball that should give him at least a good chance. 
And with the club souring on Dominic Smith and with Adrian Gonzalez on just a one-year deal, Peter Alonso could see action in the majors ahead of his preseason 2019 ETA. On the year, Alonso is hitting a robust 367 with a 478 on base percentage and a very impressive 695 slugging percentage. He has 9 doubles and 11 home runs and just 128 at-bats. As impressive as those numbers are, Alonso's newfound discipline at the plate is equally noteworthy. Alonso has always made consistent contact, but his walk rate jumped from 4% in 2017 to 14% this year, giving him a chance to develop into an above-average offensive contributor. Alonso didn't start the year as a top 100 prospect, so he might still be available in some keeper leagues, and makes an excellent target in NL-only formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scout team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week's prospect coverage includes the Daily Call-Ups report. It's free this week. Looking at recent arrivals including Tampa infielder Christian Arroyo, Kansas City first baseman Hunter Dozier, San Diego outfield Fran Milreis, and and San Diego outfielder Fran Milreis, among many others. And in the eyes have it, HQ scout Chris Blessing heads to Chattanooga and Bowling Green to put his eyes on two twin shortstop prospects, Nick Gordon and Royce Lewis. These days, knowing the prospects can mean the difference in many of our leagues, and BaseballHQ.com has the prospect tools you can use to make that difference. Now it's time for our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Tampa reliever Colin Pochet. That's how it's pronounced. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Last Tuesday, May 15, 2018 to be exact, was a very significant day for newly acquired 24-year-old Tampa Bay reliever Colin Pochet, as it was the first time he's allowed an earned run in 2018, effectively ending an extraordinary 13-game, 19-inning scoreless streak dating back to April 5th of this year. That's six weeks without an earned run, as reflected by his stellar .41 ERA for 2018. In fact, he's only allowed seven hits in that six-week span while striking out 41. Impressed? Well, consider this. Through his first six weeks in 2018, Colin Pochet has already changed uniforms three times. Oh, don't run for the laundry detergent just yet. Here's the story. After starting the year with the Jacksonville Generals, the Arizona Diamondbacks AA affiliate, in a strange twist of fate on May 1st, Colin Pochet was told to pack his bags, switch locker rooms, and play against Jacksonville, now his former team, as he had just been traded from Arizona to Tampa Bay. Despite May 1st being an off day, Colin Pochet did play two games against his old team, Jacksonville, over the next three days, and one against the Biloxi Shuckers before being quickly called up to the Durham Bulls, Tampa Bay's AAA affiliate, on Friday, May 11th. Yet through it all, Colin Pochet maintained his scoreless streak until Louisville's Steve Seleski cranked a fourth-inning home run off Colin Pochet last Tuesday, May 15th. Maybe all things, especially streaks, need to end sometime. That's why Colin Pochet, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot. 
who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Seriously, though, Colin Pochet may be a name that you'll want to remember for 2018 and beyond. A closer look shows that despite a relatively small sample size, Colin Pochet's minor league career command ratio of almost four strikeouts per walk since 2016 far exceeds the three strikeouts per walk benchmark that we use at BaseballHQ.com to identify baseball's best pitchers. By using some of the other tools at BaseballHQ.com, we can create a percentage play of approximately 56% for Colin Pochet to have a sub-350 ERA at the big league level based upon his command ratio or strikeouts-to-walks ratio of 4-1 to or 4. Of course, that's probably a pretty safe bet, as many major league relievers already have a sub-350 ERA, but not all are strikeout artists or lefties. So don't get left out, and you won't when you consider adding Colin Pochet, our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we return, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Dave Potts, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. You are challenged by the game of baseball to do your very best day in and day out. And that's all I've ever tried to do. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our expert interview with Dave Potts from Roto Grinders, one of the best fantasy baseball players you're ever going to hear. Dave, welcome back to part two. Uh, welcome back to you. <laughs> Thanks very much. Uh, you have a regular column on the Roto Grinders site. Uh, what kind of info and analysis are are you presenting to Roto Grinders readers? Every weekday, I do a, basically a full slate breakdown where I'll just go through um, either game by game or position by position, or um, you know, basically just take a bird's eye view of the whole day's slate for DFS and say, you know, here's your top pitchers, here's your top hitters. Um, with, from the angle of not so much here's who you should play today, but digging into a lot of the stats that we're talking about to tr- basically try to help people figure out how to assess baseball players on their own. Like, I really want people to become more knowledgeable in the stats um, rather than there's a lot of places you can go and just get today's picks, um, but it, it goes a little more in-depth than that. Yeah, at Baseball HQ, we say uh, that whole that old thing about uh, give a guy a fish he eats for a day, teach him how to fish he eats for a lifetime kind of thing, and that's, uh, that's how we look at it as well. Uh, I'm particularly concerned with my own DFS play. I play in the Tout uh, Daily League, and it's uh, been a pretty terrible year for me so far, and I'm having absolutely no success with pitcher assessment. What should I be looking for when I'm looking at pitchers versus salaries and values and that kind of thing? Yeah, one thing that I really recommend doing is do whatever research you're going to do as as far as, you know, the pitcher skills and the matchup. Try to make your rankings of pitchers, like figure out what pitchers you like and how much you like them before you look at the salaries. Um, there's this huge psychological thing. Once you see the salaries, um, you try to talk yourself into a cheaper guy that maybe jumps off the page, whereas if you look at the matchup first, you just wouldn't have even liked him at all and you talk yourself into playing him because he's cheap, or an expensive guy that, you know, it seems like 
at first glance, so he's the ace and he's the most expensive, and you're like, well, this is obviously the guy. Sometimes you do the research first, and he's like fourth on your list, and it makes it clear that this is not who you're supposed to pay for. I, I love doing the research before looking at the prices, so that I'm sure that I'm playing the guys I like because I like them and not because of what their salary is. Well, I, I, my basic method is I look at the uh, Woba versus right and left-handed hitters, whether the guys are right or left, left-handed pitcher, of course, and then I try to see how the, the opposing team stacks up Woba versus right or left-handed pitching, and, and that's kind of my baseline for figuring out which guys I'm interested in. Is that a reasonable way of going about it, or is Woba overrated? Yeah, is it wrong if I say no, don't do that? No, go ahead. My opinion is that Woba is overrated um, when looking at the pitchers. Not that it's not useful, um, but I always like to start just with the pitcher himself first without even considering the matchup until later down the line. Because you can really separate tiers of pitchers where there's some guys that, regardless of what the matchup might be, they're just so far below the other guys in skills that they can't make up for it. Um, I still side with the old, you know, good pitching beats good hitting. And I would always rather have definitely a good pitcher rather than somebody who looks like they have a good matchup. Um, so that that's the side I start from. And then after I get them grouped that way, then I'll go and look at, the opposing matchup, both from who the hitters are and, you know, ballpark and all that other kind of stuff. Well, when I mentioned Woba, you said not for pitchers. Uh, how about when you're assessing hitters? What's the method there? If you just need one stat, I, I, I do like Woba, um, but I, I kind of don't use it um, as much as, I mean, easy to explain things, but when I'm doing my own research, I'm still looking at plain old strikeouts and walks and does he hit ground balls or fly balls? Does he have power? Does he have speed? Um, the, the one big problem with Woba is it still has the same old issue of sample size, you know, fluky BABIP or home run to fly ball rate kind of stuff is still in Woba. Like, we're still not getting sorted out if a guy's going to be better or going to be worse moving forward that you can see in the more basic skills. I've always thought that DFS resembled auction fantasy season long play in that the owner is always watching for perceived inefficiencies in mispricing at the auction table by the other owners in the case of uh, regular leagues and in DFS by the system itself, which creates these prices. Uh, are these two pricing systems similar and where are they not similar? Yeah, they're very similar. I mean, that's a good analogy. Um, and the place where they're clearly not similar is that two people can buy the same value, which is where the problem comes in. You know, it's like at an auction table, only one person can end up with that, with that guy at the discount. But in DFS, when you have that obvious value, you know, that's where ownership becomes an issue because if someone's mispriced, everyone sees him. And then, then you have to figure out, you know, if 50% of the people are going to own this guy, is he really that much better than the next best guy? Um, so as far as just making a list of 
these are the guys I would most want at this price. I would say it's very similar to the auction. Um, but then you have to factor in that in the auction, it's just you get them or, and nobody else gets them as opposed to we can all see these same prices. So it's more like the, the, the uh, salary cap, like the old CDM games um, in that way, that we can all have the same guy if he's too cheap. When I look at uh, websites that have uh, DFS advice columns, and a lot of them do, and they say pick this guy or pick that guy, I see a lot of references to streaks and momentum in player selection, especially as it regards batters. Uh, how much weight, if any, do you put on momentum or streaks in this way? Um, I would say that I put less emphasis on it than a lot of other people. It's a really hotly debated topic, and... Um, there are people firmly on both sides. I'm not really firmly on either side. Um, I would just say that I'm always just going to weight the plain old skills of the hitter or the skills of the hitter and that matchup way above anything else. Um, the times when I really don't like it is when people say someone's on a streak just because he has like a hit like five days in a row and they might be like squibbly little singles, and that doesn't make a guy hot. Um, or when you say a guy's cold because he doesn't have a hit six days in a row, but it turns out he has five screaming line drives that got caught, um, like that guy's hitting way better than the guy who has five squibbly little singles five days in a row. And I don't think most people have any idea what they're, which one's which when they're just looking at a game log. Um, so my, my opinion is more often than not, we're trying to find something that's not there um, when looking at, at either hot streaks or cold streaks. You know, a couple of things come to mind when you say that. I was listening to, uh, uh, I won't mention what show, it was one of the fantasy shows on Sirius XM, and the guy, they were talking about the Angels' bullpen, and a guy said, uh, Jim Johnson, as usual, had a bad outing and gave up a run, or words to that effect. And I happen to have been listening to that game because I happen to have Jim Johnson on, on my roster. And uh, what wasn't clear from just looking at the box score was he got an out, then he got an easy ground ball that was that was booted. So that guy reached, and then the guy moved ahead uh, on another out and then eventually scored on a passed ball. And, and, you know, Jim Johnson gets the blame for it when you look at it in black and white on that list in the box score. But he actually pitched pretty good, and and it seems like if you just look at that, you're not you're not seeing the whole story, perhaps. Yeah, it, it happens all the time. Um, you know, with a pitcher, will you know one pitcher will give up eleven hits, but they all just are spread out just enough that he gives up two runs. Another guy, you know, gives up four hits, but three of them are homers. And I mean, I don't know you. You can't just say this one, this guy's hot or this guy's cold. And another guy might be just getting hit extremely hard and his fielders are making diving catches and so he has a shutout. Um, I, I totally agree. Like, there's just so much noise in this, um, you know, look, basically game log watching um, is what I call it. It's, it's pretty dangerous unless you really know what's behind those numbers. 
Yeah. Just the other day, my wife and I were watching or listening to a game and uh, the, the pitcher struck out the side and ended up giving up three runs because of a pass ball third strike. Uh, I don't remember who it was, but uh, all, all these runs are unearned. But if you just glance at it, you say, oh, there he is again, you know, not not doing well. And he actually did really well. And another thing that uh, I just heard the other day was uh, again on Sirius XM. And they asked the guy, well, what about this power hitter? And he, oh, he hasn't had a home run in 10 games. You got to wait till he heats up. All right, fair enough. What about this power hitter? He said, well, he hasn't had a home run in 10 games either, so he's due. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really bizarre. And, and everyone has a really strong opinion about it. So I try to not have a really strong opinion about it um, and, and just simply say that I think over a long run, you know what the skills are. And so that, that's always what I want to lean on. Whatever, what, what do we actually know for sure? And, and start there. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Dave Potts from Roto-Grinders. And Dave, during the season, I like to ask our experts to talk about players who you think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Uh, let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners for the balance of 2018. In the American League, who's a hitter you think can be a boon? Yeah, a guy that I just love, and it seems like people don't love him as much as they should, and so I just wanted to mention him, is, is Mike Moustakis. Um, I still feel like people don't view this guy as an absolute superstar, um, and that's totally what he is. I mean, he hit 38 homers last year, and he's way better this year. Like, his, his numbers are ridiculous. Um, his strikeouts have dropped. He still just hits crazy hard fly balls for home runs. Because he doesn't strike out, the batting average is good. I just think he's so real, and, and people just don't seem to be fully on board there. Yeah, I think he's on a pace to actually pretty much surpass that 38 home runs if he keeps up the momentum this year, talking about momentum. But in this case, it's skills-based momentum, which is a different kind of thing, I think. Uh, how about in the National League, a hitter you think could be a boon? So this one I'm really torn on. It's, it's just a guy that I just love and I just desperately want to love, so I'm going to keep saying it. I don't think Matt Carpenter is dead. Um, I don't like that his strikeouts have come up. Um, but it's kind of like everything just goes wrong for him, and I don't see anything terribly wrong with him. Like, he still he walks a ton. He I feel like he was the guy, and this I think this got talked about at, at first pitch Arizona last year. As far as the you know these guys figuring out the launch angle, he went overboard with the hey I'm gonna hit a bunch of fly balls, and it's like he hit him too high, and he's still kind of there. Like I feel like he's just the slightest tweak away. Like if he could sit down with Daniel Murphy for thirty seconds and listen to him talk about how to hit, I feel like Matt Carpenter would just take off. Like, I still see it in the skills that th this guy is just a really good hitter. I mean, he hits really hard. He hits line drives. He hits fly balls. He walks. Up until this year, he's never struck out. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't like the strikeouts, but I, I still love the hitter. 
Yeah, a lot of line drives, uh, but I think you're right about that uh, launch angle thing. Sometimes I also think in, in a few guys that I've looked at, Dave, that a, a change in launch angle also often includes a, a, an increase in strikeouts because it's a, an alteration to a swing that a guy's comfortable with. And uh, I think maybe it's just more difficult to put the bat on the ball when you're doing it differently than how you've been doing it since you were a little kid in a lot of cases. Uh, who's an American League pitcher who's a boon? This is another really tough one where – I kind of want to say I really don't like him, but I don't think anything is really that wrong with Chris Archer. Um, yes, the strikeouts are down. They're only down to lefties. It's kind of a weird thing if you dig into it. He's still striking out 30% of righties. Swinging strikes are the same as ever. Yeah, he's going to give up home runs, but he still pitches in Tampa. Like his his ERA is just high right now there's nothing there's nothing to suggest that he's this bad of a pitcher you know he got overrated in the past based on the strikeouts and walks and we kept thinking well this maybe this era will come down maybe it won't maybe he's just a four era guy but i still see a four era guy with a lot of strikeouts and not a lot of walks and a great home ballpark um I don't. I don't think he's broken. I'm. I'm. I'm still a fan. And finally, how about a National League pitcher who will be a boon for his owners? This would have been more interesting a couple weeks ago, but I think Louis Castillo is is, is good to go. Um, it was a really weird start to the season, where most of what he was doing didn't look like there was anything wrong with it, um, and then there was a lot of you know. Let's look at he was maybe his mechanics looked a little different and his release point was a little off and spin was a little funny like there were a lot of like reasons to think maybe this is wrong or this is wrong um but he was still there was still a lot to like in the skills the last three starts he's looked he's still given up a couple more home runs than you would like but um like his swinging strikes have been over 18 percent like three starts in a row um I, i think that early season awfulness was totally overblown probably won't be as good as what he was last year in the small sample size but he might be um i mean his his strikeout ability is clearly in there um the ground balls are starting to come back up i don't i don't think this kind of home run problem is going to continue i think he's totally fine and with some upside Dave Potts, Boons, Mike Moustakis, Matt Carpenter, Chris Archer, and Luis Castillo. Uh, let's move over to the Baines, Dave. These are guys about whom you think listeners probably should be cautious, shall we say. Uh, let's again start with an American League hitter who could be a Bane for his owners the rest of the way. I love this guy, and I totally see the talent. But if you're looking for who can I sell high right now in a single-season league, I think... Yohan Moncada is the guy that people are so excited about. And yet, if you look at, this is where uh, people are going to yell at me if you don't dislike me already, if you look at Moncada and then you look at Rugnet Odor, I don't, I'm not sure they're any different, really. Um, the guy's striking out 35% of the time. Like, that's not... That's not really okay. Um, if he has power and he has speed, and I think he's going to be a great player. Um, 
But I don't see that the White Sox are letting going to let him run. Like early in the minors, he was stealing like 40, 50 bags. Um, I don't see that that's going to be what he does. And I don't see that he's more than a 20 home run guy who strikes out a crazy ton of the time. And at least in the DFS community, people just are bonkers nuts about this guy. Um, and I'm a little nervous with those strikeouts. Any advantage in an on-base league? He's walking a lot. His on-base percentage is 100 points up on his batting average. Yes, yes. I, I would say if you're an on-base league, I like him a lot more. Um, the walks do help there. Um, yeah, it's definitely like batting average is the thing I'm most worried about uh, coming way down. As a Moncada owner, I like what I see, except, uh, boy, oh, boy, that strikeout rate is a problem, and his batting average on balls in play also very high, around 380. And I know he can run, and, you know, there's all those advantages, but still. Uh, how about a National League hitter who's a bane for his owners? Um, I, this one's kind of cheating now that he's hurt again, but I'm really worried about Cespedes. Um, I, I, really, I really love the guy, and I... He's still hitting home runs this year, but now he's got a hip injury. He's had a thumb injury and a quad injury, and he's striking out 32% of the time. Um, I just see so many red flags here, both with the health and with the strikeouts. Um, I, I'm very nervous about him doing much of anything this year. And over to the mound, how about a pitcher who's going to be a bane for his owners? Uh, so this is another guy, I, I love him. He's on like all my teams, and I would love to say this is totally real, but the, Ronaldo Lopez, um, just everything went right out of the gate. Um, but he hasn't brought his strikeouts up, and the walks have come up. Like I don't think he's anywhere near realizing his, his potential. I, I see a well below average pitcher who got very lucky. Like his FIP is 532 and his ex-FIP is 586 versus a 350 ERA. I think he's closer to that five. And I hate saying that because I like the guy. And maybe, you know, he's, he looks like a, a really high fly ball pitcher that, you know, sometimes they can get kind of lucky in Babbitt just because fly balls turn into outs. Um, but unless these walks come way down or the strikeouts go way up, which I don't see any reason to think the strikeouts are coming up until he does it, I – it just looks like a really fluky start. One of the things that I learned uh, at Ron Chandler's knee was the importance of what we call the command ratio, which is strikeouts to walks. And here we're looking at 31 strikeouts, 21 walks, which is about a 1.5 a strikeout to walk ratio. Really, you're looking for 2.5 plus, and really three is better. So bad, yeah. And finally, in the National League, who's a pitcher who's going to be a bane for his owners? Yeah, so here's another one just to make people dislike me, a guy that just everyone just desperately wants to love. I just I just don't see it as Carlos Martinez. Um, and when I say I just don't see it, that, that's, you know, compared to his, his reputation and where he got drafted and all that. Um, he does have the little injury going on right now, but it sounds like he'll be back in a, a week or so. Um, he started out with this 162 ERA, um, and it's just not there like he has two great starts and every year he's had a couple of these just awesome starts where you go this guy's the real deal because you watch him pitch he looks incredible when he's on the strikeouts his career high in strikeouts is 25 percent 
fine. Um, but this year he's at 22%. He was at 21% the year before. Like, this is not actually a guy who's shown really strong strikeout ability consistently. It, like, it pops every once in a while. And when it shows up, everyone's like, see, this guy's a superstar. But I, I don't know that he is. Um, and he's walking way too many guys this year. Like, his walks have always been, like, borderline, like, acceptable. But um, this year they've gone up to what I would call unacceptable. Yeah, I like the ground balls. Um, but this is a clearly fluky ERA from a guy that I see as, like, a, an above-average pitcher who's going to have a few great starts which is all fine and good. And I still, you know, he might end up being a great pitcher still at some point, but I think he's overrated right now. And another guy with a pretty poor strikeout-to-walk ratio, just over two. Uh, another reason to be cautious on Carlos Martinez, uh, Dave Potts' Baines, Joan Moncada, Joana Cespedes, Ronaldo Lopez, and Carlos Martinez. Uh, tell us where listeners can keep up with Dave Potts. Yeah, you can always find me on rotogrinders.com. Um, and on Twitter, you can find me at Dave Potts two. Yeah, that's the numeral two, Dave Potts, all one word, and then the number two. Uh, Dave, it's been a slice as always. I always look forward to having the chance to talk with you, and I hope we can do it again later this year. And in the meantime, best of luck, and I'll talk to you when I talk to you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Dave Potts is one of the most successful fantasy baseball players ever, and he writes a regular weekday column at rotogrinders.com. When we come back, it's our weekly talk with Todd Zola and Master Notes coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. One and one to Williams. Everybody quiet now here at Fenway Park after they gave him a standing ovation of two minutes, knowing that this is probably his last time at bat. One out, nobody on, last of the eighth inning. Jack Fisher into his windup. Here's the pitch. Williams swings, and there's a long drive to deep right. That ball is going. HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be back with you, PD. You have a really good column this week at ESPN.com about a critical factor in fantasy baseball, especially these days, stolen bases. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of the column, how has the stolen base environment, the changes in the stolen base environment, affected how we should manage the stolen base category? You know, I don't, I, I think this is a, t- a common topic and people like to talk about it, but I don't know if it's changed all that much. I think it's just on a relative basis. There's even fewer steals relative to homers and RBIs and the whatnot. It's always been sort of an independent, unique category, which we can talk about in a, in a couple seconds. But I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's a little bit less incentive, especially in only leagues, to go after the top guys. But I, I'd like to have a great answer for you. But I, to me, it, it just so there's there's fewer steals and more homers. I don't know if there's a drastic change in approach that we need to do just because the I guess sort of the the nuances of the categories are still the same maybe I'm missing it I don't know I just I, I don't have that answer you may be searching for I was talking with Doug Dennis after the Tout American League draft and he spent pretty heavily on D Gordon and I asked him afterwards you know what was what was your thinking about that and he said he thought D Gordon was the most valuable 
offensive player in the American League at the point of draft just because uh, with assuming 60 or 65 stolen bases, he could basically pretty much win you the category outright. And, uh, and that's something that no home run hitter can do. You, you need a bunch of home run hitters because there's a bunch of home runs. But I think his theory was you get those 65 D Gordon bags. All you need to do is get five or 10 here and there from some other guys. And all of a sudden you win the category and he's not hurting you in runs and, uh, and on base percentage either. Yeah, no, uh, yes. And in a vacuum, my own numbers had D. Gordon as being the most valuable player in the American League, even more so than than a Mike Trout. And I, you can say Mookie Betts now. Be, Betts wasn't wasn't in the same breath coming into the season. He was close, but he wasn't in the same breath coming into the season. But it, it, it is true. It, there's still a certain team construct that's needed. But to be honest, that was kind of always the case. I don't think that's any different this year. Just insert a different name as the top base dealer. The 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 entire population was stealing more bases so you get that extra bump those extra couple from whoever you're supporting billy hamilton or d gordon or whoever happened to be stealing at the time louis castillo several certain not that pitcher they hit her several several years ago so again i don't know that it's changed a ton but uh you know in in, in a vacuum too you have to sort of understand that you can't just look at my rankings baseball hq rankings anybody's dollar values on a piece of paper and see D Gordon's the top guy the most valuable you still you have to understand what he's contributing where he's contributing it and it's it's you know it's an individual player you still need to build a team around him to uh to get the other points in the other categories and he puts you at a, a deficiency in some of the other categories but like you mentioned, he helps so much in steals and runs and in batting average as well. It's not just a one-category guy. We're talking about you know D. Gordon here, that you know you, you just have to know where he's getting it from. But you know the, the whole argument with you know what if he gets hurt, then you're in trouble. Yeah, that's true. And maybe maybe it's less of an issue if a if a Chris Davis or a, a singular home run hitter gets hurt. But they're also you're also losing in runs and you're also losing in RBI. So I think that the the, the argument about if your base dealer gets hurt, you're in trouble. I don't know if if uh, if a comparable non-base dealer gets hurt, I think you're in just as much trouble. Then it just becomes a matter of how how you can backfill, and that might be how well you planned on your reserve, uh, how well you're able to trade, and, and some things like that. So we're all chasing a declining number of stolen bases. You started your column by citing Tristan Cockroft's advice. Not a bad source of advice for fantasy baseball, I'll say. <laughs> uh, he he was talking about daily moves leagues, and he's said that the one of the techniques you ought to be using is targeting the opposing battery, the opposing pitcher and catcher. How does that work? What Tristan's doing this year, he uh, instead of, he's always done a forecaster where he's planned the, the week's uh, events as far as pitching and hitting and, and the whatnot. What we're doing this year, I can say we're because I'm giving him a, a, a mild hand in it as far as when I see some pitching changes and the whatnot, is he's keeping a, a 10-day running uh, list of uh, probable pitchers. And along with that, the hitting matchups against that pitcher, one of which is a speed score. And that combines the pitcher's ability to hold runners on and the likely battery, the likely catcher, the likely backstop that he's going to be paired with and how well that catcher is at throwing runners out. So one thing to do, you know, it, it scored 1 to 10, 10 being the highest. So if you're looking for, for a base dealer, you know, in, in keeping in mind that uh, the majority of leagues are daily moves, not DFS, you know, regular seasonal leagues, but with daily moves. One of my favorite things in leagues like this, 
is I, I don't focus on stolen base hit, stolen base players in my draft, but what I'll try to do is on a Monday and a Thursday, I will try to supplement my off-day players with a stolen base specialist. And the first thing I do is I go to the forecaster, and it's also in the daily notes that uh, I, 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 I manage daily notes for ESPN, and we pull the same rankings from, from, from Tristan's forecaster to the daily notes. So I'll look and see which, which, which batteries are rated, you know, 7 or above. It's on a scale of 1 to 10. And I'll see if there's an available player or if I have a player in my reserve from a team like that, that, that that's rated easier to steal against. You can do the research yourself. All the, all the data is on what's well, on ESPN. It's on almost all the sites where you can look at catcher stolen base rate and pitcher stolen base rate because, as we know, there are so many pitching changes that is, as, as diligent as we all are, we can't keep up with them all. And sometimes uh, the, the better catcher on a team may be weak at throwing runners out, but it's the backup that day, especially on a Sunday. So I, I really suggest the, you know, the more in-depth you, you are as far as your team management, you do the research yourself. Tristan's is a great place to start. The Daily Notes are a great place to start. But, you know, you, you, it's not that hard to do the research yourself. So, um you can get the catcher's stolen base against, the pitcher's stolen base against, kind of put them together, realizing that the catcher has the pitcher kind of melded in, because, you know, the, baked in, because the, the catcher's catching all those pitchers. So, you know, tie for me, if the if the, if the the pitcher's rate is low, but the catcher's rate's pretty good, I kind of go by the pitcher's rate, because chances are that catcher was catching that day, and he still couldn't throw the runners out. So I'll, I'll, I'll you know, I'll break a tie with with uh, adhering to the pitcher's success rate against. Well, as you mentioned, this is uh, applicable advice for people who can make moves on a daily basis. Is there any applicability of the theory to season-long play with weekly moves? Um, I don't know about looking at the at – the, there are other ways – there are other things one can do as far as looking at the, the batteries. I mean, I suppose um, in, in a league where it's fairly shallow that – you can kind of pick a guy up and, and, and drop him and realize there might be somebody a couple weeks later using using Tristan's 10-day as an example that, that you know, that gives you, you know, a week and a half, two weeks worth of transactions to look at. So you can pick a guy up for a couple of weeks and use him for those couple of weeks if you maybe you're behind in steals or maybe you have a guy that's injured and he's only supposed to be out on for a 10-day period and say, you know what, I could use a, I could use a, a, a little bit of a steals boost. I don't want it, I don't need it for the whole year, but, you know, I pick up five or so steals this next couple of weeks, it'll really help me, then I can put so-and-so back in. Sure, you can use the 10-day, uh, the 10-day, Tristan's 10-day forecaster ranking to sort of find uh, teams that may have a better chance of stealing during that 10-day period. You also say that we should be paying attention to batting order positions, and of course that makes a lot of sense. Uh, But one thing I noticed from the chart, and you commented on this, is that National League teams seem to be more active stealers at the top of their orders, but American League teams have a heavier weighting at the bottom, kind of like myself. How should we be playing this (laughs) aspect of batting orders? Yeah, you know, I think think this is kind of somewhat intuitive, but sometimes... When we say it's intuitive, I don't think we mer- realize the extent of of the differences. You know, I think we, yeah, it makes sense that the leadoff hitter steals more. But I was sort of surprised that the leadoff hitter steals almost twice as more in the National League as the number two hitter. Especially in today's day and age where you don't talk about the, the typical two hitter that can hit behind the runner and can bunt and all these sort of things. 
we we don't really talk about that as much as we used to. So it surprised me that the the leadoff hitter steals twice as much as the number two hitter. Um, on the other hand, you know, there's, there's the Chris Bryant's and there's some. Not that he can't steal, but he, you know, there the National League there are a few teams that are putting power guys at the number two spot. So anyway, yeah, so that's one thing trend, is that. Yeah. The, the the hitter the leadoff hit the leadoff in the NL is even more an advantage than I may have thought. But as you kind of alluded to, the other thing is you know we, I don't know if we say not necessarily a shoe the AL as far as stolen base goes, but you know I think it makes sense that the bottom of the order runs more in the AL because there's no pitcher that you either walk the guy or you don't want to get thrown out and have the pitcher lead off, etc. I was just surprised at the extent that the AL runs at the bottom of the order, especially the nine spot. In that, you know, we play DFS. You avoid the bottom of the order because they don't get as many plate appearances or they can't produce as many runs because it's a weaker order. Well, if you're looking for steals, if you're trolling for steals, the opposite is sort of true. You want a guy at the bottom of the order. Sure, he gets fewer, you know, one fewer plate appearance more than likely than the hitters above him. But they're, for whatever reason, maybe because they feel they need to generate offense at the bottom of the order... Uh, or these are their defensive players that can't hit very well, and that but they can run. If you're looking for some steals, don't just sort of categorically uh, ignore AL hitters hitting the bottom third. They're all about the same. You know, number nine is has stolen the most, but it's not enough to not you know only target number nine hitters. No, I mean seven, eight, nine all steal at a, at a rate uh, greater than the cleanup. Five, six, seven, every, everybody but the top two, three hitters in the National League. The bottom three in the American League steal at a rate greater than every batting order position in the, in the National League except the top three. You also said there's a peculiarity at the extremes. That's your wording uh, when it comes to the very yeah. important factor of team and manager tendencies. And that's a critical part of trying to figure out who's going to steal bases is whose manager allows it. What's the peculiarity at the extreme? Yeah, this is a little, little tough to explain. Uh, I'll see if I can get it right. Um, so you, I looked at the top five or six as far as opportunities go. And uh, actually, it was yeah, it, it was in the opportunity range, how much they run. And we define opportunity as the amount of steals attempted per times they get on first base. It's, a, it's not exact, but you know, we, we don't track the, the data as granular as, as, you know, how many, you know, sometimes you're at first base as a guy in second. But you kind of figure everything evens out and the number overall works. So the top five and six, and this is for the past three or four years, the top five or six teams on either end, the top end all ran uh, less than they uh, less than they did in the first two months of the season in the last, you know, compared to the last four months. Actually, they ran more in the first two months than the, than the last four months. That is, they, 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 they slow down their running frequency when the bottom five or six, they increase their running frequency. Now, I, I mean, I, there's a lot of people out there probably saying, duh, I mean, we're at the extremes. You can only go in one direction. But here's sort of the, the intricacy is I didn't re-rank them and find out that they all dropped in the ranking relative to themselves, relative to the amount of relative to how they were running. They all ran less. So if you're running a lot and you're successful, I mean, why don't you? Even if you're running the most, you could still run more. Just you know, you could still. But but from, and it was just consistent in all the different uh, in all the different years that they all ran a little bit less, no matter how they were, no matter what their success rate was or or whatever. So uh, so basically, what here is, I mean, 
if you're looking for a team that, you know, this team runs, well, sure, the player is probably still going to run. He may just be running a little bit less as the season wears on. You know, you, you can have a bunch of narratives as to why. And again, a team at the bottom, they're probably going to be running a little bit more. It doesn't mean that they're going to run a ton more, but, you know, you, you can anticipate a little bit more. And the other thing that's sort of important here, and it kind of feeds into it, I did a, a more, less, and same scale. And it to be more, they had to be running 10% more than their current rate and less, you know, 10% less than their current rate. So when you're at the bottom, if you're running 5%, it's only another half percent to be more or less. It's not very much. Um, so it doesn't take a whole lot for the bottom teams to run more. But at the top, it takes, you know, if you're 10%, 11%, which are, which are reasonable numbers, now you have to run, you know, running a full percent more or less. So the teams that, you know, the, the, it's even more fascinating, the teams at the top, they had to drop a full percent, they did, you know, relative to what they were doing. So I don't know. I, I just think that uh, it, it's not... It's not going to win you or lose you a league, I don't think necessarily. But I just do think it's interesting that the trending was uh, to expect a few less steals from the guy, teams at the top and a few more from the teams at the bottom. What role, if any, does success rate of individual guys uh, play in targeting potential stolen base help? This I found a little surprising. I actually did some research when, when I was uh, writing under you at HQ several years ago, and it was kind of a, this is a good example of why you should repeat studies of this nature, because the results can change, and why you just can simply assume year to year that things stay the same. Uh, what I found was uh, the, the managerial tendencies had little, if anything, to do with their success rate, which kind of surprised me nowadays. Now, it probably means, I, I, I don't think that you can say every single manager doesn't care. I think what it means is enough managers don't care that it makes the numbers look random or there's just, you know, opportunities uh, added to the haze. So, in other words, a team didn't look at their, a manager didn't look at their success rate and say, oh, hey, wait, we're over 75%. The numbers say if you're over 75%, it's, it's a stolen base is valuable. We should run more. Uh, and if we're under 75%, we should run less. So on a team-wide basis, it doesn't appear managers are doing that. However, on a player-by-player player basis, they are. So that's that's sort of the that's 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 and that's the research I did with you uh, under you a few years ago. Although the extent wasn't as much as it was a few years ago. So it's still it's still leaning that way that if a if a runner is successful 75% of the time. There's a good chance that he'll pick up the pace, that he'll get the green light more or just on his own run more. And if it's under 75%, he'll slow down because he's hurting his team by these extra outs. Uh, it's not quite to the extent that it was uh, a few years ago. So you have to sort of take that data, think of the team he's on, think of the manager. And just, you know, it's, it's your own subjective opinion. Is this player a heady player, and will he use this to his advantage, or is this player just you know a toolsy player? I don't want to. It sounds like I'm profiling, but is this player just a speedy player and just you know runs because that's all he can do, and it may not adhere to that sort of trend. I also wondered if the uh, change in how the game is being played, higher strikeouts, fewer singles, especially just fewer base runners in general, has changed the run expectation matrix that we have been used to that's kind of set that uh, 
uh, success rate threshold at about 70 or 71 percent. Above it, you're helping the team score runs. Below it, you're hurting the team and scoring runs. I wonder if that line has moved because uh, it seems to me anyways, without having looked at it in any detail, that a caught stealing now hurts more than it used to because it kills a higher number or a higher percentage of the base runners who reach because the amount of base runners who reach has declined. It might, and that's something to look into. And I and I, I do check that at the beginning of each season. I don't think it changed a ton. The average rate, the average success rate is now 72%, whereas this this magic line you're talking about, the run expectancy is around 75%. i have also wondered if two different things are sort of folding into this. In that, with this with instant replay, how many times now do we see guys getting called out because the middle infielders are smartly holding the tag? Maybe not as much this year. It happened a lot more last year. But they're holding the tag. And, you know, if you come off that base for a millisecond, you're out. And the replay can see it. And the other thing being, with the with the number of slide injuries on slides, I'm wondering if stolen bases in general being curtailed. And what it does is it it, it just it kind of biases the, the data towards... Those are just going to run anyway, and you know who cares if I if I you know I, I, I'll take the chance of breaking my finger because I'm not helping the club any other way, so I'm going to run. But I, I think there I think stolen base is a weird category in that there may it's it's an opportunity. It's not it's not simply skills based. It's an it, there's there's opportunity and there's some other ancillary factors to the category. So haven't seen as many of those hold a tag on guys getting called out this year because I think runners are just being trained or just literally practicing, you know, holding the base as they slide. Because beginning of last year, it seemed to happen once a game. And you kind of say, when are, you know, when are infielders going to learn to continue to apply the tag? Because they're going to get, they're going to, you know, pardon the pun, steal some outs that way. I often think also that I'm waiting for somebody to get back to teaching these guys how to slide feet first because the uh, the unwillingness of having a guy running in there and jamming a thumb or jamming a wrist would seem to indicate to managers to say, I don't want you to run because I'm afraid you're going to hurt yourself. But if they knew how to steal feet first, if they knew how to slide in with a hook, proper hook slide uh, like they used to back in uh, you know the 60s and 70s and before that, then maybe we'd see more willingness to steal bases. Uh, based on your own advice, Todd, uh, let's wrap up by saying uh, give us a couple of good stolen base targets, maybe one from each league. Yeah, now, you know, yeah, okay, so I use these in the article. Um, Andrew Benatendi, now, he was going to steal anyway, so I don't think it's a surprise, but he's 7 for 7, he's a heady base runner. Uh, Alex Kors says he wanted Benatendi to steal 20. So to me, you know, if you can get Benatendi in a trade, someone may not factor in as many steals as you, as I think he's going to get. So I, you know, it's an it's an upper level player, but I, you know you can get these guys, and in the National League, I think Trevor Story is a target. He's also seven for seven, um, you know, known for the power, the strikeouts, Colorado, whatever. Seems to be running, seems to be successful. I think he'll continue to run. He's another guy where you can, you know, maybe someone wants to sell high on Trevor Story because he's his batting average is up a little bit more than people think it might be, which could be feeding into the steals. But those are two players, you know, they're not going to help you in deep leagues necessarily, but those are two players I think if you trade for their present owner may not factor in the number of steals that they're going to get, at least I think they're going to get by season's end. Fantastic advice, Todd. It's a terrific column. Uh, Thanks very much for sharing with us, and we'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Looking forward to it already, Patrick. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball ESPN and Rotowire and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. 
Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about what player fantasy values would look like if the categories were different. Longtime Master Notes readers and listeners probably know that I believe the fantasy baseball categories are not as good or well chosen as they could be. Over the years, I've written in favor of completely changing the category setup to more closely align to winning teams in Major League Baseball. The takeaway from that, you don't need stolen bases or saves. And a couple of years back, I wrote about Ryan Quality Starts, seven innings, three or fewer earned runs as a wins replacement. All of this came back to me this week when I heard the discussion about categories come up on one of the fantasy shows on SiriusXM, or maybe it was on a fantasy podcast. Whatever the case, the debate was, as usual, about the game-wide effects that any changes would cause. But it got me to thinking about how things would be different on a player level if we used some different categories. Luckily, BaseballHQ.com has a perfect tool for analyzing the effects of alternate stat categories. The Baseball HQ Custom Draft Guide, which we call the CDG, like a Roald Dahl novel. Baseball HQ subscribers can use the CDG to create fantasy player valuations using their choice of a huge range of stats categories, including the most commonly used and the most commonly discussed alternatives. Most often, the CDG is a preseason draft prep tool, but it's also possible to choose the year-to-date stats and generate player values in-season and for projected stats. It's a real help for trade evaluation. Anyway, I set up the CDG with balanced budgets and a 70-30 hit-pitch split. Then I ran the CDG with the usual 5x5 categories. After that, I made these changes for hitters. First, on base percentage instead of batting average. I and others have been an advocate of this change for years. It only seems rational to me that if we consider the walk to be significant enough to punish pitchers through the whip category, then surely a walk should be significant enough to reward a hitter. The Tout Wars leagues do play on base percentage and so do many others. Second, I use total bases instead of home runs. That column I wrote way back when, analyzing how to match roto categories with actual MLB team success, concluded that home runs were somewhat overemphasized, and that extra bases was a better measure of overall run generation and therefore success. But that was in conjunction with changing walks to hits plus walks, a position I've changed to OBP as noted earlier. The CDG does not have extra bases as a category, but it does have total bases, which is still better than home runs because it rewards overall offensive production without zooming in on a single event while ignoring the other ones notwithstanding their effect on batting average or on-base percentage. Besides, the home run remains a premium event across the categories, generating a run and an RBI, as it does now, plus four total bases. Finally, I ran the CDG with both categories. I wanted to see, in addition to assessing each change separately, how they would work together. In each case, I checked how the player values from the CDG changed as the new categories were introduced. To set levels, I started with the regular 5x5 categories. So far this year, in mixed formats, the CDG ranks Mookie Betts of Boston as the top value guy at just over $42. Other guys in the top 10, Machado, Trout, Lindor, Ozzie Albies, Pollock, Jose Ramirez, Aaron Judge, J.D. Martinez, and Starling Marte. 
Some injury news affecting a few of those guys this week. A few early surprises among those hitters, including Albies and maybe Pollock. When the CDG uses on-base percentage instead of batting average, however, there's a few new names and a few names lose. The new players, Bryce Harper, Freddie Freeman, and Trey Turner, and they replace Ozzy Albies, J.D. Martinez, and Starling Marte. And just between you and me, I think the new stat is better just on that. But the difference is that the walks help hitters like Harper, Freeman, and Turner, while the absence of walks reduces the pure batting average value advantage of high batting average, relatively low walk guys. Albies has a 350-ish batting average so far, but his 4% walk rate leads him to a $3.87 loss in value using on-base percentage. Interestingly, walk rate also affects Martinez and Marte, even though their walk rates of 8 or 9% aren't actually that bad, pretty much league average. But they're relatively bad when the leaders are well into double digits, led by Harper, of course, at a 22% walk rate. And again, any change that gets Bryce Harper into the list at the expense of Ozzy Albies, I think it's a good move. Several other high walk guys jumped by $5 or more in 5x5 value with on base. Mike Trout, Reese Hoskins, Matt Joyce, Aaron Judge, Matt Carpenter, whose 294 on base percentage is still very low, but it's a lot better relatively than a 145 batting average, and Justin Bauer. Big dollar value losers are led by D. Gordon, who has a 353 on base percentage, but it confers less of a relative advantage to the other on base percentages across the league than does his 327 batting average, and it ends up costing him. Repeating the exercise using total bases instead of home runs, the list is almost the same, although some of the hitters shuffle around their places and every hitter loses overall value from the regular valuation. This looks to be the case because total bases is a more compressed category than home runs. All hitters, after all, amass at least some total bases, and league average hitters get relatively more total bases than they do home runs. So again, any particular high home run hitter loses ground relative to batters with fewer home runs, but of course more of those other kinds of hits. For example, D. Gordon replaces J.D. Martinez because the total bases category removes what amounts to a low home run penalty for Gordon and removes the high home run premium for Martinez. Instead, total bases rewards Gordon for his many other hits and especially his extra base hits. As I said in the intro, this seems like a good thing. Home runs remain the most valuable outcome for a hitter, but this stat gives credit for all those other positive hit outcomes. And finally, what if we take the CDG values replacing batting average with on-base percentage and home runs with total bases? Well, again, relatively low-walk guys like Albies, Martinez, and Marte lose ground to more well-rounded hitters. The biggest beneficiary is not in the top 10 list, but Joe Maurer adds almost $8 of fantasy value because his walks help him up to a 400 on-base percentage, and he has enough hits and doubles to get some extra help on total bases, even though he doesn't hit a lot of home runs. Other winners in this area who didn't make the top 10, Reese Hoskins, Brett Gardner, Alex Bregman, and Jesse Winker. Keep that in mind. Now, I'm under no illusion that an exercise like this is going to create any kind of groundswell of support for getting rid of home runs and batting average from our scoring methods. After all, we still see them on our TVs every night. I just think they should be replaced to get a broader and fairer way to assess the actual hitters' actual performances. Next week, the pitchers. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every week in the free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website every week. And of course, we have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 18th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 17 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. Of course, I want to thank our guest for this Friday full edition, Dave Potts, one of the most successful fantasy players ever, a very interesting writer at Roto-Grinders as well, and a terrific guest on our show. He's one of the best known and most successful fantasy players I've ever known, and a very nice and gracious and thoughtful guy as well. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute was presented by Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky. Thanks as well, and as always, to Todd Zola, our regular weekly guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast or an old joke is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes or Stitcher or Pocket Cast, wherever you get your podcasts, and add to our ratings and reviews. They really do help us keep the podcast going because they attract new listeners. Thanks again for being an old listener. We'll be back again next Friday with another full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.